Hello and welcome to a special anthology episode of Double Reel, the monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a love of movies and stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Regular listeners will be aware that my co-host James and I make film-related New Year's resolutions every January about films we want to watch or changing the way we watch films. My resolution for this year was a little project I called 2022 at Kubrick Odyssey. Month by month I've been watching all the films directed by the great Stanley Kubrick in order of release and then discussing them on the episodes through the year. This episode collects all those many features into one big one for you to delve into. Full disclosure, apart from the intro and outro on the episode, there's no new content above and beyond what was in each of this year's episodes, so if you've been listening along and caught up on them all, you may want to give this a miss. However, you may find this a nice way to tour through the films of Stanley Kubrick in one go, especially if you're a fan of his already, or if this project has whetted your appetite to get into his films. It's fair to say Kubrick had an enormous impact on cinema from the 1950s through to the 1990s. He's a hugely enigmatic figure and a legend has developed around him and his films. Everything he did is talked about, he changed the way films are made and even how we watch them, and no filmmaker straddled the often conflicting worlds of auteur status and mass entertainment more completely than him. This is all the more remarkable given how few compromises he made for his audience. He seemed to enjoy making us uncomfortable just as he did as actors and collaborators. This episode follows his films from his early beginnings right through to his epic final works, with various stories of him and his creative process along the way. The complete list of films I watched and talked about with James and our audience goes like this. Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, The Killing, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. I hope you enjoy this trip into the world of Stanley Kubrick, and I also hope it inspires you to watch or rewatch his films. I really felt good about where we got to with like the the twelve month project I did of the Year of the Carpenter. So I decided my New Year's resolution for for this year was going to be to replicate that with something different and new. So I've uh, I've decided that, that this year is going to be 2022 a Kubrick Odyssey. And I wanted to focus on Stanley Kubrick in a similar way to the way in which I focused on John Carpenter last last year. Um, my original plan was I was going to do, well, he's, he's directed 12 films, hasn't he? So I'll just do all of his films, one a month. And then I sort of had a proper look at his filmography and he did this really obscure early film as well. So he's actually directed 13 feature films. So I thought, well, what do I do? Do I leave one out? And I've just decided, because his first two films are so short, their combined running time is two hours, ten minutes. Um, but I decided I would do his first two films in one go in the first month. Um, and other than that, I'm just doing one Kubrick film a month till I get to the end of the year. So chronological order, his first films first, uh, and then each each month will be his, his next film after that until we get to his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, in December. Um, so that's my... Um, that's my plan. Um, so the, the two early films that he, he did, I think there'd be films that people are less likely to have heard of, is 1953's Fear and Desire and 1955's Killer's Kiss. And uh, What was uh, that first one, sorry? Fear and Desire, done in 1953. Sorry, say it one more time. Fear and Desire. Your defence is terrified, well, Greg's on fire. Fear and Desire, yeah, very good. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah... Fear and Desire is basically his like low budget debut, where he scraped together what money he could. I think he, I think he took out a couple of loans. You know, people, you know, friends and family gave him some money for it as well. Uh, and you can, and it and it shows. I mean, it's really really done on a shoestring. It's it's him. It's first time directing a film. He'd only been a photographer 
prior to that, like a photographer for magazines and things. So you can see that he's very good at framing a shot, but it's his first time, you know, directing live action and people and, and stuff like yeah. that. You can see it's Kubrick in the sense that it's very good and there's some very, very kind of strong scenes of kind of, you know, violence because it's about soldiers in some sort of unnamed allegorical war. It's a little bit it's a little bit pretentious because I think you didn't have the the money to do, you know, accurate like accurately say this is where it's happening or this is the war that I'm doing a film of. So we decided to make it a very kind of allegorical about war generally. Um, and there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, sort of slightly dreamy, um, pretentious statements. But there's, there's some good moments in it. Um, they're written by a guy called Howard Sackler who went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for a film, a play called The Great White Hope, which made made into a film. Um but yeah, it's just it, the first film's barely over an hour long. It, it's it, the most thing interesting thing about it is that both of these films have got a guy called Frank Silvera in them, and Frank Silvera was uh, born in the Caribbean. He was uh, he was black, I guess. He, he became American, so he's an African American. Um, but he was actually getting parts in films that were kind of completely irrelevant to his race, which is very very unusual in the nineteen fifties. Um, and he's in it, and he's quite good. He plays a good guy or a, one of the soldiers in the first film. I mean, Kubrick doesn't do good guys, and he plays an out-and-out -out villain in the second film. Um, the first film is like a meditation on war and violence, and uh, and it's very much Kubrick experimenting and learning the craft of film. He pretty much disowned it afterwards because, you know, Kubrick is the sort of person who likes to do an extra hundred takes and make sure everything's right. So this film probably had him up nights going, oh, I can't believe I did that. You know, his OCD was prickling all over him at all, hmm. the, all, the, all the takes that he had to accept that weren't good enough. The second film is called Killer's Kiss, and this is a sort of more recognisable as the kind of films that were being shown as B-pictures back then in the 50s. It's a film noir about a boxer who's fallen on hard times. He's never going to be the champion. He's thinking about retiring. It's, you know, his his life is hard and, and, and he's kind of at a low level. He's uh, sort of in love or got a crush with his neighbour who is a dance hall hostess and she's being kind of um, pretty much, you know, abused and kind of harassed by her boss. Um, and they want to leave together, but the you know the gangsters who kind of control both their lives aren't, aren't going to put them to do it. And it's a traditional film noir about kind of you know the, the you know people in a violent city trying to get out from under kind of the crime ridden world that they live in. It's a bit more polished than the first one. There's more signs of Kubrick's skill with the camera. There's a terrific final kind of chase and fight sequence. Um, the main problem is budget. He didn't have the budget, so the voiceover tells you half of what happens in the film because clearly Kubrick didn't have the money to film like police interrogation scenes and stuff like that. So the narrator tells you half of what happens in the film and just leaves it out. You could tell that he wanted to do more than he was able to do with his... Um, right. But it's got a really good like handheld documentary feel, um, shot on location in, in New York, I think. Um, the money didn't match the ambition, but there's a lot of his, uh, a lot of his uh, initial promise there. Um, you know... You can tell it's Kubrick because of how well shot it is and kind of the tone of the films, but it's unusual to see a film that's kind of a bit amateurish because he just didn't have the money or the actors to do what he really wanted to do. Um, but he took the money he made from these films and then started making the films that we become that he would become known for. The next film he did was The Killing, which I'm going to do next month. So this really is early days Kubrick. This is him kind of starting out, scraping together whatever money, money he could and filming something to kind of show off his talents. And and I think Kubrick would argue that his film career started after this point with his next film, The Killing. Okay. So it, next month I'm going to be doing The Killing, where we're very much in in you know more traditional Kubrick territory. We're entering his kind of mid to late fifties phase, where he did things like The Killing, Paths of Glory, and then on to Spartacus and his like early sixties films, where he started to make his name. Um, so this is like uh, 
This is like the first very early experimental phase of Kubrick. Uh, it was really interesting to watch them. I'd never seen them before. I didn't really know anything about them. And obviously, when you talk about Kubrick, you kind of you kind of think, all right, we're in 2001, The Shining, you know, Barry Lyndon. And this is not like any of that. So it's, you know, madly different. But uh, uh, an, an interesting little piece of film history, kind of like when we watched Dark Star, discussed Dark Star, you know, in the... Um, in the Carpenter series uh, last year, it's like, well, I probably won't watch either of these films again, but it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting kind of uh, completion exercise, really. That was all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the first month of 2022 at Kubrick Odyssey. The Odyssey sort of picks up the pace a little bit next month. And um, that's our roundup. So my resolution, uh, as we mentioned last month, uh, we're going to make this year um, 2022 at Kubrick Odyssey where I'm going to watch all of Kubrick's films in order a month at a time. We did a slightly special one last year where I did his two debut films in one go because they're small and, and short and kind of just in, you know, getting on his feet. This uh, this month for February, the Kubrick entry is The Killing, uh, which he did in 1956. He was just 28 when he made this film, so he's actually a bit of a whiz kid in his early years, uh, Kubrick. Um, you know, thinking that, you know, Ridley Scott didn't uh, didn't direct his first film until he was 40. Um, you know, it's just different things for different people, how you break in. Um, this is him really getting in the big leagues. This is him really demonstrating what he can do with a film. Um, this is still a relatively low-budget film, but it's more than double what he had for his first two films combined. Uh, he's got some name actors. He's got a big-name co-writer, uh, the crime novelist Jim Thompson. Uh, and what this is, this is still in the era of film noir, and heist movies have become quite popular then with, like, The Asphalt Jungle, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and... Rififi in the French film 1955 really hit a peak uh, and along comes Kubrick in 1956 with a big statement of his own on heist movies it's got Sterling Hayden as the main actor who wasn't huge but he's a reasonably big name and uh, so he had some he has some film noir conventions and some heist film conventions to stick to so this isn't him completely blowing apart film and becoming Kubrick but it is you can start to see Kubrick getting in while he's got the hard-boiled crime dialogue that Jim Thompson co-wrote with him, it's there's a lot of classic stuff about these, you know, des- a lot of desperate characters down in their luck, a lot of venal characters getting caught up in crime. There's a corrupt cop, do you know what I mean? There's a you know bribery from politicians and stuff like that. Um, but what it is, it's a, it's almost like Kubrick is watching over this. He's kind of he gives you a narrator and he watches with like that an all-seeing eye everything that's going on and just shows you that that the plot unfolding. Uh, brilliantly. It's a heist where they aiming to steal $2 million, which is quite a lot of money back then, from a racetrack on the busiest day of the year. And the main character is basically keeping all the plates spinning and is in control. And he's the only one who knows the whole of the plot. He's trying to control everything else. And he's got one one guy doing this, one guy doing that, um, which is very Kubrick. It's, a, you know, it's, it's about someone who's trying to control a situation that then gets out of control, right? That's so many of his films are like that. Uh, which is ironic because he was clearly someone who wanted to be in control and a lot of his films are about situations that kind of get completely out of hand. Um, it's brilliantly done. Um, this is, you know, what, what I mentioned before is he, he was really clearly knew how to compose a shot in his first two films because he started out as a photographer and made a name for himself. But the moving picture is a different thing. This is him totally getting it. He's got a kind of documentary feel for the way he shoots the streets. Then he switches to an expressive noir atmosphere for the, the gang and their dingy apartments. This is the first film that I've seen that like plays around with the narrative structure for the heist. Uh, they, they actually Tarantino uses this in Jackie Brown, where he shows you something happening and then they rewind like two hours and show you what happened just before that, 
and how you know what else was going on at the same time. So you've got all these different parallel timelines brilliantly like tied together. Um, big influence on Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown, as I said. I love Tarantino, to be honest, because I recognise that from a, a bit of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's his shtick. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and, you know, it's like uh, all film directors are inspired by other films, and Tarantino has the distinction of being inspired by some really fucking good stuff, including this. Um, when when you listen to Real 2, you'll hear how Tarantino was inspired some by some great stuff that Walter Hill did. This is unsurprising that someone who makes films about criminals would be influenced by this movie because it's absolutely spot on. There's a really interesting scene in the film as well, which is worth mentioning, is that part of the heist involves a sniper firing a shot uh, at one of the racehorses to cause the distraction so that they can commit the robbery. Uh, and so Sterling Hayden's character has hired a, a sniper to do that, and he's got to sneak into the car park. And he does that. He manages to get into a car park that's full by pretending to have a war wound and building a rapport with the car park manager, who's a war veteran with a bad leg. So it's kind of quite clever that he builds a rapport with him to do that. What's interesting about it is that that car park manager is black, um, played by a, a, an African-American actor at the time called James Edwards, who kind of, you know how, oh, you're a veteran as well. You've got the same injury as me. We have a rapport. So he starts trying to talk to him. He starts coming up to him and kind of, you know, chatting to him. And the sniper's like, I've got to take my rifle out in a minute. I wish this guy would fuck off. Do you know what I mean? Huh. And um, either because he's trying to get rid of him or because he's actually a racist, he turns around and calls him the N-word and tells him to leave him alone. And it's just a really interesting scene about that because clearly still, um, Stanley Kubrick is portraying this character as a racist and this guy is quite upset by that, understandably. So, oh wow, it's just quite interesting to see that portrayed in a film in the 50s. And it also shows how Kubrick isn't sugarcoating any of these characters. Do you know what I mean? That 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 occurrence has like a knock-on effect to the rest of the heist as well, which I don't want to spoil the plot of. But uh, it just shows how Kubrick is being really... Uh, you know, it shows how dark some of these characters are. It's not putting too fine a point on it. So it's quite uncompromising. The high, as I said, the heist plan involves killing a racehorse, which is quite quite shocking. Um, the, the the degree of violence in the film is right on the limit of what was permitted at the time. And what he can't do with bloody effects or language, he makes up with how well he shoots the scene. Uh, if you remember, I talked about his first film, Fear and Desire, which has a scene where like some soldiers, uh, you know, go in and have some hand to hand combat. And you can't show any blood or anything about them, but the way he shoots it gives you a lot of impact. So it's Kubrick really kind of hitting his stride here. Through, yeah. So, um, like I said, this is one of the first films that delves into Kubrick's preoccupations with control. Um, you know, and then you, when you see stuff he does like The Shining and 2001, that's, you know, you can see what Kubrick does in his later films are bigger and bigger and more elaborate versions of, of, of what he's doing here. Um, so it's really interesting for that. But it's just a cracking heist, uh, heist movie in its own right. Um, it wasn't a big box office success, but it was a massive critical success. You know, reviewers at the time were putting it in their top 10 of the year. It was very, you know, very well received by the people who watched it. And uh, it got him the attention of Kirk Douglas, who was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, and hired Kubrick for his next film, Paths of Glory, and the film after that, Spartacus. So his next two films are with the biggest star in America at the time as a result of doing well here. So um, yeah. this kind of propels him into the A-list. Um as always, I always like to give the audience an impromptu top 10 at this point linked to the film that I've just been discussing. So because The Killing is such a milestone in the subgenre of heist films, I'm giving you my top 10 favourite heist films apart from The Killing. Uh, so in no particular order, that is Refifi, Dog Day Afternoon, Heat, Widows, Inside Man, Inception, Reservoir Dogs, The Town, The Usual Suspects and Thief. Michael Mann has the distinction of having two films on that list. 
Um, there are some interesting films I left out because I don't think they're heist films per se. While they've got heists, they're really about something else, like Hello High Water, Point Break, Dillinger, Out of Sight, and Jackie Brown. Um, and there were a couple of straight-up heist films that didn't quite make the list. They, although I really liked them, they just missed out. The Asphalt Jungle, which kind of in, invented the whole uh, subgenre, and Logan Lucky, which I think is a Sod- Soderbergh's best heist film, um, better than the Ocean's films by far. Is that the one where Daniel Craig becomes an albino? Yeah, yeah. And Adam Driver's in it as well. I really like that film. It's Daniel Craig. He's got this little side project from Bond where he practices his uh, various Deep South uh, American accents. <laughs> and this is one of them. Um, so, yeah, I really like that. So that's my impromptu top 10 for uh, for this episode linked to our Kubrick country. Uh, next month, I'll be doing Kubrick's classic anti-war film, Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas. Uh, we decided that my year-long project this year is going to be 2022, a Kubrick Odyssey, in which I watch all of Kubrick's films. Um, and you know, each month I'm, I'm watching a, 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 an instalment in his, his his total filmography. By the end of the year, I will have watched all of his films doing that. I'm watching them in chronological order, so we'll just progress his career. Um, and this one was Paths of Glory, his World War One um, classic uh, anti-war film. Now, this is something that uh, I've seen before. It's one of the ones where I was just, when I was first getting into films, and Kubrick comes up as one of the big names. And, you know, you know, people you chat to yourself, Paths of Glory, great film, one of his best early films. And it, and it absolutely is. It's based on a, a book, an anti-war novel about World War I. It's set among the French army fighting in something like 1916 or 17. Uh, so the setting means that it's after some of the worst battles, the, the horrendous casualties that have been taken. It's around about the time that uh, people have really realised what a, an absolute horror of a war people are caught up in. And for... A range of reasons that no one can really justify. Uh, a general is is told to uh, carry out an attack on on the German line that has almost no strategic value. It's just they need to carry out an attack, look good for the look good for the papers, show that they're doing something. The German uh, that's the high com- you know the high command the French high command is you know just saying do it you know we we, we need to show like we're doing something. The general decides he wants to do it because he he's going to get offered a, a serious like uh, you know promotion if he if he does it. Um, he passes down the uh, the the command to take this German spot on the line, even though the Germans are very well defended and they're likely to get hurt. They admit that they're going to probably get over fifty percent, even up up to sixty percent of casualties. That will, you know sixty percent of the men will die in this battle, and the colonel in charge of this attack, Kirk Douglas, is um, you know thinks this is an absolutely terrible idea. Uh, he's given the choice, well, fine, if you, you can always resign your commission and someone else can lead these men in the attack. And Kirk Douglas's character kind of has no choice but to say, well, at least I know these men and at least I can kind of do my best for them if I'm here. If I abandon yeah. them when they're about to get you know slaughtered in this attack, then what does that mean for me? So he decides to press on with the attack. Uh, the whole thing is a shambles. Uh, the uh, some of the troops never even get out of the um, out of their trenches because the, the the shelling is actually killing some of it, their own men and the the German army is ready for them and is just uh, peppering the the no man's land with shots and artillery. They can't even get out of their trenches, uh, so the attack is called off, and uh, essentially three men are picked either at random or because their commanding officer doesn't like them or for whatever reason to be tried and court-martialed for um, for cowardice for the failure of the attack. Uh, and it just it just shows the poor decision-making, the flaws in the battle, 
the 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 absolute uh, disregard for human life in in World War One. Um, it's it's potentially a sort of an older um, viewpoint of the war. I think after in the immediate aftermath of World War One and in the the writings of the the war poets and a lot of the writers of World War One, there has been this kind of single narrative that. It was lines led by donkeys. These soldiers were just completely left to rot and, and then crucified by um, uh, their generals. I think more recent uh, his, historical kind of study of the era has been more nuanced than that, but this really captures powerfully this anti-war statement. And you just come out of this film so angry. It's beautifully shot. I think when we talk about 1917 in the classic, uh, the classic section, it will be an interesting comparison because while 1917 was very much... Uh, designed to be composed as if it was one take with a single tracking shot. This doesn't do as much as that, but there is some amazing tracking shots and like immersive photography of the war there, which um, which I, I think suits the trenches because the trenches is essentially a narrow pathway that people have got to walk down, and I think that's why the tracking shot of the trenches is such a such a good like shot to use it in 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 a film about World War One, um, and. Because it's Kubrick, he's very he's he's done several war films. Thinking about it, Kubrick and all of them, he kind of casts his kind of pitiless eye on human flaws uh, as played out in a wartime situation, and this is no exception. And it's really brutal. It's um, considering when it's made, it, it, it's about as brutal as it could possibly be about war. In a, you know, without actually being banned and unable to be released in 1957 when it came out, but because because Kubrick is so good at depicting things because you're not allowed to show any blood and you're not allowed to show anything too explicit but he still manages to make you really feel the horrors of war and then the horrors of them saying oh these guys have actually have got medals for gallantry and have been picked at random they're now going to be tried for cowardice you just it's it you know you're so furious and angry at the end of it but you know beautifully shot great performance from kirk douglas as far as kirk douglas uh, as far as kubrick's career is going he was picked up to this film because Quite a few people have been impressed by his previous film, The Killing, that we discussed last month. Um, this got on the job with Kirk Douglas. Um, this was an interesting one because um, while Kirk Douglas was a big star and was pretty much calling the shots, his salary was almost a third of the total budget of the film back then. Um, Kubrick was actually the one calling the shots in this film, and Kirk Douglas was actually quite impressed by a young guy, um, uh, Sandy Kubrick, who's not even 30 yet, is controlling you know the, the film and telling these veteran actors what to do and making sure he gets all the takes that he wants so this is the start of stanley kubrick making his films his way um even though if you compare it to his later films it doesn't feel as completely a kubrick film as those ones if you see what i mean because by then he's he's gone and created his own productions basically but this is very much you know it it would have stood out in the 50s as kind of a cut above all the other films that are coming out at that time and it was as a result of this film that he was picked to do his next film, Spartacus, with Stanley Kubrick, which is a very different film and experience. And we'll talk about that next month. But it's uh, it's an absolute belter. Have you seen Paths of Glory, James? Uh, no, I saw Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. I'm not yeah, seen yeah. Paths of Glory yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very powerful kind of anti-war statement, which kind of says everything. I mean, it's really like the uh, like the listener who who wrote in and until recently. Your best, anti, your best World War One films were All Quiet on the Western Front and Paths of Glory, and it really is up there at the very, very top rank. Um, yeah. 1917 is a is a further debate that we'll have later on in the show. Now, what I also like to do each month, uh, which I did last year for the Carpenter films, and I'm going to continue this year for the Kubrick films, is to provide an impromptu top ten of films linked to uh, the one that uh, we've been discussing. And uh, since the 
Paths of Glory's second half uh, mainly centres around uh, Court Martial, uh, I decided to do an impromptu top 10 of Court Martial films. Now, these top 10s are often more diverse than this because uh, the, the subject matter can be a little bit less narrow or can be applied to a few different films, like, you know, different uses of a DJ. We had one one month and so on. This time, it is going to be a bit more limited to a certain type of film. Uh, so these are Court Martial films where a military trial of some kind uh, comes into play uh, and is a central part of the film. So, in no particular order, the impromptu top 10 court-martial films, not including Paths of Glory, is Breaker Morant, A Few Good Men, The Kane Mutiny, Casualties of War, Carrington VC, King and Country, Sergeant Rutledge, Judgment at Nuremberg, Anatomy of a Murder, and Stalag 17. I mean, I thought it was interesting to compare it to Paths of Glory, because I watched both of these films, you know, no more than a few days apart. Um, obviously, Paths of Glory could not show that the limitations of budget and the time in the 1950s could not show uh, as much, I think. And obviously, you know, Paths of Glory was black and white. This is colour. It's more vivid in that way. I think Paths of Glory does a similarly good job of, the, of showing the trenches and the horrors of the battle. I think it, it was. They're both brilliant on that score. I think this is more immersive and shows you more of the kind of overall, you know, Western Front itself. I think Paths of Glory takes more time to comment and more overtly comment on the leadership and the war and the disregard for human life of the war. Whereas this is a little bit more about it kind of, I think I don't want this to sound like criticism because I don't, I don't think this is a, you know, soft soaps on the horrors of the war at all, because, you know, at one point someone falls and a hand goes into a dead body. So they're by no means soft soaping the horrors of the wars. That's not what the point I'm trying to make. I think Paths of Glory comments more overtly and criticizes more overtly the people who started this war and, and, and were and were conducting it. Whereas in this it is a little bit more like the, the generals that you see are we're trying to save lives here, and the generals that he's going to see will presumably listen if, you know, once you tell them not to not to continue with the battle because it's hopeless. Whereas yeah. in in Paths of Glory they showed the people in charge as being a lot more cynical than that. Um I think that's just a matter of taste, really. That is the Kubrick entry for this month. So we are three months into the Kubrick Odyssey uh, and we're going to do Spartacus next month. for 2022 was to do a project similar to the one I did last year uh, and this year's is called uh, 2022 A Kubrick Odyssey where each month I watch uh, an entry from uh, Kubrick's film and by the end of the year I'll have watched all you know all of the films that he directed. Um, this uh, this month I'm doing Spartacus the uh, Roman epic about the uh, gladiator slave turned rebel. Uh, it's a, a true story obviously fictionalized for the film. Um it's obviously quite iconic. You know, there's the I'm Spartacus scene that everyone remembers. It's it's Kirk Douglas's favourite film of the films he made, or what he, what he thought was like his strongest film that he did. Um, it's very, I mean, it's, it's good in all a bunch of ways. It's probably Kubrick's least personal film, which is mainly because um, the film was all set to be directed by a different director called Anthony Mann, and it wasn't working out, and, and Douglas fired him, and he brought in Kubrick because he'd been impressed by Kubrick from the previous film they'd done together, Paths of Glory. Um, and 
Kirklog has wanted this to be his legacy, the film that he would remember, he would be remembered for, which I think it is. Um, he needed a director who would make this stand out, and I think Kubrick definitely makes it stand out. But it's definitely not Kubrick saying, "I'm going to do this film. This is what this film is going to be about, and this is how I want to make it." Do you know what I mean? Like pretty much all of his other films, he sets out to make a certain film, and in this film, he sets out to make a film that he's kind of been hired to do by Kirk Douglas. Um, so what that meant was there was a lot of battles because Kubrick still comes in and says he wants things a certain way. He wanted to make some changes to the script. He, you know, he basically told, he fell out with a cinematographer and told him to sit down and Kubrick would be his own director of photography because the cinematographer just wasn't doing what Kubrick wanted him to do, which is really ironic because that cinematographer won an Oscar for this film because mm-hmm. Kubrick told him to sit down and, and let him do it for him, which is ironic. Um, I mean, you've seen Spartacus, haven't you, mate? What did you think of it? Yeah, I saw it um, relatively late. I think I was about eighteen when I saw it. But no, it's it was obviously a bit dated at the time. But it's still a, it's still a good film. It's one of those ones that I think I would have liked if they'd had like a budget for it back then and like the kind of facilities to do it kind of more justice back then. So obviously it was done in what nineteen fifty. 1960, so... 1960, I thought it was Yeah, around about the time. It had a very big budget for the time, but I don't think it had a very big budget for what it was trying to do, if you see what I mean. It, I think the, yeah. it's probably, it might be money or it might be resources. The resources that were available to Kubrick, uh, sorry, to Ridley Scott for Gladiator would have done Kubrick a favour, wouldn't it? Yeah, that kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, there's some interesting kind of bits of film industry for it in that Dalton Trumbo wrote the script, uh, even though he was blacklisted for um, uh, being too left wing for, for for the Americans. Uh, huh. and, and, you know, you don't have to be that left wing to be too left wing for, for Americans, do you? Uh, and uh, Kirk Douglas insisted that uh, um, Dalton Trumbo get screen credit for what, for his writing, uh, which meant he broke the blacklist. So Kirk Douglas basically said, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of these kind of right-wing psychopaths kind of killing our industry. Uh, and he, uh, he, Kirk Lugas was a bastard, but he, he was fearless and he fought for what he believed in. Um, so that was a good thing. Um, interestingly, Kubrick didn't like the I'm Spartacus scene, uh, yeah. which for those who haven't seen the film is a scene where um, they want to, they want Spartacus's gladiators to betray him or his, his fellow fighters to betray him. And, and Kirk Douglas doesn't want his other guys to die. So he stands up to say, I'm Spartacus. But before he knows it, Tony Curtis and all the other people stand up and say, I'm Spartacus, which one works in the, the scene dramatically. You say, we're not giving our guy up. But it also works in the I'm Spartacus, as in, you know, everyone who, who, who wants to be free, you know, is Spartacus. It embodies what he believed in. So it's so I think that's just one that Kubrick got wrong. And Douglas, D- Kirk Douglas and Kubrick um, fought heavily over many things to the point that Kirk Douglas's wife suggested they go to couples therapy together. Um, so it's kind of weird that actually the film's better because of, of that of that struggle. Do you know what I mean? Kubrick fought for certain things and made it better, but he's probably he was probably right that he lost some of the battles he lost. It's funny because it's I think it did it did Kubrick a lot of good because it's got a great cast: Charles Lawton, Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis, Lawrence Olivier, Pete Ustinov. Um, it's it was the biggest budget you'd ever had to deal with. It was a big hit. It won three Oscars. Um, it certainly propelled him, you know, properly onto the A list. But he he didn't enjoy the experience because um, he hates fighting. He hates that kind of confrontation. 
uh, reading up about this film, I realized that what Kubrick did, you know, because Kubrick's very dominating. He makes people do things his way all the time on his films. There are like 160 takes of it. And but, it's he, but, he, but he never raises, raises his voice to do it and he never gets flustered. He just says, look, I want you to do it my way. And he doesn't fight people like that. Whereas Kirk Douglas, we get into blazing rows with people. And at the end of the film, Kubrick was like, that was really exhausting. I hate fighting like that. And Kirk Douglas was like, I fight like that with everyone on every film. So Kirk Douglas was fine. He was like, that was normal for him. But for Kubrick, it was too much. And it was the reason that Kubrick actually left, one of the reasons Kubrick left America and went to make his films in Britain where he could kind of do things more his way. But I mean, obviously it it concerns um, the true story as much as we know, it's been done in different ways. There's a really good historical novel about Spartacus by Lewis Grassett Gibbon, which I recommend. Um, this tells the story of Spartacus being kind of enslaved, but because he's big and strong and and fights back when he's when he's mistreated, they say he'll make a good gladiator. And they put him in with a bunch of other gladiate, gladiators, but instead of um, uh, agreeing to fight and die for Caesar, they rebel, uh, and it, it turns into a movement, it turns into an army. This was actually the third slave rebellion and this one really scared the shit out of Rome. They thought this could this could really kind of bring things down for them. Um, and in in the end, Spartacus loses. I don't think I'm spoiling any plot because you know the Roman Empire stayed up. Um, but the way he fought the battle is is pretty striking. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I thought it was quite interesting. There weren't as many battle scenes as I was expecting. Yeah, Kubrick's not really done I mean it's weird because Kubrick did Path to Glory and I thought there was a lot of battle in that he did more battle scenes in Path to Glory and in a later film called Barry Lyndon than he did in this I thought it was curious they would and I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a, a purposeful choice on behalf of someone whether it's the script writer or whether it's Kirk Douglas whether it's Kubrick to kind of save all the big battle scenes for the like the big climax because there's a few times where what I was expecting to see was at least some kind of montage you know like a burning city and like clash of swords and the Romans being propelled back just to kind of give you that kind of idea of, you know, the this rebellion is sweeping Rome or sweeping Italy. And in the end, you don't get that much of that. You get kind of the, uh, you know, you get news, you know, Olivier gets news back in Rome. Shit, you know, we've lost another battle. This, what, what do we have to do to stop this Spartacus? I'm not sure quite whether they made that choice. I mean, I, I, mean, I thought it was, I, I really enjoyed the film, but I was expecting a little bit more action along the way before that big final battle. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, it's also interesting, um, if you look at Kubrick's films, I think he did about half and half black and white to colour. And I think part of the reason for that is illustrated in this film, because this is like a late 50s, early 60s Technicolor film. So it has a similar look and feel to things like Quo Vadis and Ben-Hur, which came out around about the same time, where everyone looks very bronzed, because that's what the, the colour film looked like. Yeah. And... Um, it's strange because you know that Olivier doesn't look like that. Hang on, has he got fake tan on? What, he's, he, everyone looks really bronze, and it's that's the colouring of, of, of colour film back then. And he didn't make another colour film uh, until 1968 with 2001, and, and, and the colour stock then looks photorealistic. It's like, yeah, that's what human skin looks... You know, all the skin tones and everything else look far, far more realistic. So, you know, his next two films, Lolita, I'm pretty, pretty sure Lolita's black and white, and definitely Doctor Strange is black and white. And it's like he just said, look, the, the colour color film's not there yet for me. Do you know what I mean? Um, but it's, look, it's, 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 a, it's a terrific film. I, I think it stands out because the way Kubrick films it and some of the dialogue and the way in which the battles take place and the way in which the, the story is explored, it, it is a cut above the kind of traditional epics of the day. Um, it is definitely worth watching for that. It does... It doesn't have many Kubrick touches, but it has a few of them here and there. There's a lovely scene where, lovely, but a beautifully done scene where 
Laurence Olivier is trying to seduce Tony Curtis, who is who is um, his slave, and it's all shot from through a doorway, like you're spying on them, or like you've just walked in and seen it happening. And you know, not many you know films had those kind of touches back then, so it's definitely worth watching. Terrific film, and it's all right. Kirk Douglas is great. Um, it's inspired me to do an impromptu top ten, which I always do for the um, for the roundup. Uh, this impromptu top ten, inspired by Spartacus, it's a pretty simple one. Top ten Kirk Douglas films. So apart from Spartacus, uh, in no particular order, the top ten Kirk Douglas films uh, that I think of are Paths of Glory, Lust for Life, uh, where he played Vincent Van Gogh, uh, Seven Days in May, Ace in the Hole, The Bad and the Beautiful, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, Lonely Are the Brave, Champion. Detective Story, and Gunfight at the OK Corral. So that's the impromptu top 10. That's the Kubrick entry for this month. And uh, next month, we'll be discussing the highly controversial Lolita from 1962. For May, we're in, uh, we're in very controversial territory, uh, Lolita, which was in 1962. This is after Kubrick has left America. He's come to Britain. He's set up here. He wants to make films over which he's got complete control. Uh, he wants to go and explore different films he wants to make, uh, and he proceeded to adapt uh, a sensational and notorious novel from the late 50s by Vladimir Nabokov called Lolita. Now, this caused all kinds of outrage and scandal when it was published. It was much challenged and banned around the world. Like all media hysteria about the subject matter of the book, it completely misses the point of what the book was trying to say. The, the book is tells a story from the point of view of an unreliable narrator, Professor Humbert Humbert, who is a middle-aged man who is attracted to underage girls. And the way, the way he tells it, oh, he's, he's just the victim of how attractive these girls are and society's refusal to accept their genuine love. But it's quite clear from the ironic tone of the novel that he's an unreliable narrator. And the way that the, the, the story is told and the unfolding narrative shows that he's essentially groomed this girl, Lolita. Um, and it's not the first time he's done it. He's controlled her. He's destroyed her mother's life. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows why he's got to hide from society. And it shows what a grotesque, pathetic individual he is. Um, and it also shows, you know, the, the misery of, of a girl caught up in this, you know. Even if she thinks that what she's doing is of her own volition, it isn't because she's been groomed. Um, much banned. People completely missed the point of what Nabokov was trying to say. Um, and given the stir that this film caused, plenty of filmmakers stayed clear of making it. Um, but Kubrick accepted the challenge. A number, a number of actors steered clear of being in the film that Kubrick made because he thought this is just too hot to handle. Um, but Kubrick wanted to make it because he understood what the film was about. He understood what it was trying to say and he wanted to say that. Let's not steer clear of, of telling a, a story that kind of highlights a, quite a phenomenon. I think it's we, we're so much more aware of stuff like that this nowadays that the storyline itself is quite, um, uh, it's still relevant. Right. Um, it's made in black and white. It's got James Mason as the main character. It's got Shelley Winters, who is a big kind of actor of the 50s, 60s and 70s, as the mother. Um, Peter Sellers plays another man who has uh, designs on younger girls, who is a rival of James Mason's. And a young girl called Sue Lyon as the um, as the girl, Lolita. And it's, it's very, very well done. It, he went back to black and white after Spartacus, um, I th mainly, I think, because Stanley Kubrick didn't trust... Technicolor at the time. He, he, he waited until the late 60s to make colour films because only then did he think the film stock actually looked right. He, he started out as a photographer, so film, it's got to look right or he won't do it. Um, so it, it's very, very well done. It's brilliantly acted. He gets the ironic tone just right. Peter Sellers is amazing, but this film is killed by censorship. There was so much pressure not to show explicitly. And when I say explicitly, I don't mean explicit sex scenes. I mean to actually say out loud and be very clear what's happening 
there's so much pressure not to show it too clearly that it reduce, reduces the storyline to a lot of hints and innuendo. Like they barely kiss. So it's like, what exactly are we watching? Do you know what I mean? And it's not that you want to see it, but why would you watch a movie or why would you tell a story without telling the story? Do you know what I mean? Ironically, the Catholic Church in America was a leading figure in the censorship and pressure not to tell the, the full story in this movie, which kind of, when you realise what's happened in the 50, huh, 60 years since, yeah. is quite a quite a thing. Um, I wonder why. Um, I have no doubt about Kubrick's intentions. Uh, he's, he's contrasting the unreliable narrator with his wrongdoing. Um, the changes take so much of the sting out of the story. In this, the girl Lolita is 15 rather than 12, and she looks like a young woman, not a child, which completely misses the point. It always makes you think that they're trying to say it's not that bad what he did, when that's clearly not what they're trying to say. Um, it cuts out that he was involved or obsessed with another young girl before this. It leaves out a lot of the parts of the book where Lolita is clearly miserable with the situation she's in because she's been sexualized and made to behave like an adult before she's ready. Um, and and that combined with the way Kubrick decided to tell the film film story, I think it would have worked if he hadn't been censored so heavily. And af afterwards, Kubrick said if he'd known how heavily censored it would, would be, he wouldn't have bothered. Because what he did was he realised that just using the ironic tone of the novel wouldn't work, so he tried to play up the farcical elements of it, showing how pathetic this main character looks when he's at a kid's high school dance, like, you know, hiding behind a, a pot plant, watching the girl dance and stuff like that. And there's a lot of farcical elements to it, because I think that was how he wanted to address the difficult issues that the story tells. Um, I mean, again, it, it gets it across. Some of the original intention survives the censor. The opening shot of the credits is an older man painting the toenails on what's presumably a young girl's feet. And given you know what the film's about, that's a really creepy and unsettling image. Yeah. Um, the grooming dynamic is still there. Um, but it, it's just, you know, and there's also scenes where one minute he's talking to her as her father or stepfather because he marries the girl's mother. And the next minute he's talking to her like a jealous lover. It is creepy and it shows you, you know, it's not like anyone in making this film was trying to do anything other than tell how horrible a story this is. Um, but so much of what the story was trying to convey was just killed by the censors. Um, so it, it's a difficult topic. It's not a film I'd, I'd find myself re-watching, I don't think, because it's just, you know, it's a really difficult well, subject. Ones, yeah. And I'm certainly not going to watch the more modern remake, which tells the story more more graphically, because I don't think I could stand that. Um, uh, but it is, it's an interesting milestone in, in Kubrick's, uh, Kubrick's filmography, because it, it showed that he was prepared to step up and try a challenge. Um, it also inspired an impromptu top ten on my part, which is film adaptations of controversial novels. Uh, apart from Lolita, that top 10 looks like this. American Psycho, Fight Club, David Cronenberg's Crash, The Naked Lunch, Lady Chatterley's Lover, the 1981 version, 1984, the John Hurt version, Sophie's Choice, Last Exit to Brooklyn, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, it's a very interesting group of films there um, for people who've got a strong enough stomach for some other content. That's our roundup for the month. That's our Cuba country for this month. Uh, next month for June, we will be doing Dr. Strangelove, which is probably um, probably Kubrick's second true masterpiece. Um, my resolution for, for this year was to, to do another film project like the Carpenter one I did last year. Uh, and this year I'm doing... Uh, 2022 A Kubrick Odyssey, where each month I watch one of Kubrick's films, which having done 
sort of sneaked in his first two shorter films in January, it means I'm actually going to be able to do all of his films in, in one project. Uh, so each month, I, you know, as, as we progress along, we're progressing along the curve of um, Kubrick's career. This takes us to 1964 and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Now, <clears throat> after Paths of Glory, this is Kubrick's second true classic of his career. And I think it's, if people were going to talk about which are Kubrick's best films, this is definitely in the conversation. Um, you've seen, have you seen, you've seen Dr. Strangelove, haven't you? Yeah, I've seen Dr. Strangelove. What did you think? It's absolutely barmy, and that's what I love about it. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's interesting from your point of view because obviously you were born after the Cold War was over, and although there is still a nuclear threat because there's nuclear missiles dotted around the world and always a few lunatics trying to do shit, I don't think you have you you really have much kind of memory of that kind of Cold War kind of paranoia that was going on at the time. It, this is something that um, your your interest in history you probably know about it, but you know you yeah. don't, don't have a lived experience. Yeah, I've of never it had that kind of that kind of paranoia. Even with the war in Ukraine and Russia, I've never had that kind of that paranoia. The closest like kind of paranoia of the world ending was probably like the kind of COVID pandemic where yeah, we yeah. basically forced to stay inside. So I've never had the kind of experience that you went yeah, through yeah. when you were a similar age, I suppose. I mean, there are some parallels um, to that, which we'll come back to the whole COVID thing. But yeah, I mean, my, my experience of this is in the 80s, we were still very much sort of in a sort of period of fear about the Cold War. And there were films in the 80s that came out like, imagining what nuclear war would be like. So it was definitely a thing. This is the 60s version of, of that. Now, in it, an Air Force commander called General Jack D. Ripper has gone mad. He believes the Soviets are plotting to control the free world by putting fluoride in the water. He orders his planes to launch a nuclear attack on Russia. He's convinced his men that anyone trying to stop them, even other military personnel, are communists plotting to overthrow America. So they prepare to fight to the, to the death to stop the attack being called off. In the war room of the U.S. government, the U.S. president and his generals and advisors, led by the excellent George C. Scott, flap around trying to call off the attack, uh, and when it looks like it might fail, start to try and rationalise it and pretend they can win the atomic war with only a few million casualties. Meanwhile, the Russians have set up a doomsday device that will automatically destroy the whole planet if they are attacked, so they have to find a way to call the whole thing off, but one of the planes and their crew are determined to reach their target. Now, this was based on a 1958 novel called Red Alert, which is much more serious in tone. This whole thing is a great example of that Cold War fear of nuclear destruction, which we talked about at the top of this, um, and concern about the arms race. Um, all of this intensified and became even more relevant after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, where the standoff between the USA and the Soviet Union came very, very close to nuclear war. And one of the things about that is, until, I don't know if you know this, mate, I know you're pretty hot on your history, but until... Uh, 1962 until until after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there wasn't a hotline between Moscow and and, and Washington DC, so that yeah. the president or the leaders of each country couldn't pick up the phone to each other and say, right, we need Pat to talk. Yeah, so the, the the opportunity for a misunderstanding was fucking enormous. Um, the whole thing was intended <laughs> to serve as a warning, and we must be careful. The various political and military leaders of both countries need to ensure that safeguards exist around nuclear weapons, that careful dialogue between heads of state, sound processes and decision-making be applied at all times to avoid the extinction of the human race. Kubrick takes an exurbic look at all of this, and the idea of the human race actually being able to organise things and make sure disasters don't happen, and he laughs bitterly and says, we're all fucked. So that's his whole world to, to, to this. Um, he takes a more serious subject and finds a way of telling the story, which is far more uh, comic and farcical in tone. He's essentially laughing at how ridiculous it all is. Um, stuff like 
um, uh, General Ripper's ob- obsession with essential bodily fluids and things like that. It's, it's you know, the name's Jack D. Ripper. It's beautiful. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. And he realizes that doing this as a black comedy is the best way to tell this story. Um, the initial drafts of, of, the, of the film had the same serious tone, um, but Kubrick was working on it and he found so much detail about the story, the procedures, and the attitudes of military and government were ridiculous. And he was going, I'm leaving the best things out of this story to try and keep the serious tone. So he said, no, 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 let's actually make this farcical. Let's actually show how farcical all of this is, this whole idea of a nuclear deterrent just sitting there threatening to destroy us all. Um, so he brought in a satirical writer called Terry Southern and helped write it that way, and a classic was born. The characters in the film are variously crazy, hapless, deluded, or just stuck in their mentality and refusing to acknowledge how insane the whole idea of a nuclear deterrent is. Anything which undermines their worldview can be dismissed as a communist plot. Um, the actual Doctor Strangelove character that's in the title was invented for the film. There's no such character in the uh, in the. Uh, in the original book. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is another film came out the same year called Failsafe. I don't know if you're aware of that, mate. No, no. Sorry. S- same story, but done much more seriously. Okay. Um, and uh, what happened there was that um, both films were being developed and it looked like Failsafe had been nicked in a number of ways from the original book. How much of that is true, I don't know. It's obviously after the Cuban Missile Crisis, this became a, we should do a story about the possibility of nuclear war destroying us all and what would we do if it happened. I think it's natural that more than one story would be out at the time. But Kubrick was very keen to make sure that his thunder wasn't stolen. So he successfully sued the makers of the other film, um, not to stop that film being made, but just to make sure it wasn't allowed to come out until sometime after Dr. Strangelove. So they had a clear run at the box office. And when Failsafe came out eight months later, it's actually a decent film. It's got Henry Fonda in it, um, much more serious in tone. But that film got good reviews, but not as good as the box office because everyone went, well, I've seen this. I've seen this movie. And Kubrick, you know, he fought really hard to make sure that his film got, you know, the, the main the main view of the audience. As you said, the tone is extremely satirical. You know, you've got a character called Jack D. Ripper. You've got um, a guy whose surname is Guano. This, the president's called Merkin Muffley, and the, the main um, uh, pilot is called Kong. Um, I don't know if you know, you, you, I don't know how many times you watched me, but there's a very early role for Jane, James Earl Jones in the bomber plane. Oh, yes. Um, which is quite fun to watch. Because he's such a voice actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this film's got a very modern style, I thought. I don't know what you thought, mate, compared to the other films of the era. I mean, it looks like a 60s film, but actually, compared to the other films that are made at that time, it's got a lot more of the film techniques which are now commonplace. I think Kubrick was really kind of reinventing the way we make films. If you see this, there's a very documentary-style <clears throat> um, battle scene at the base. The, the 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 shots and the close-ups and the way it's filmed, it, it's it's ahead of its time, for sure. Um, <clears throat> other, other bits of trivia that, that I like was um, George C. Scott, um, who plays one of the president's generals who's trying to call this off. Um, he's brilliant in this film. At the time, he was annoyed at the kind of overacting that Kubrick seemed to be demanding from him. Every time he did it, Kubrick would go, no, I want more. I want a bigger performance. And George, he sort of was going, this is, this is shit. I'm, this, you're going to make me look like I'm overacting the whole way through. And then he saw the final film and realized it was actually one of his best performances. So it's like he kind of respected how Kubrick was really... Kubrick had something in mind for his performance and got it, which was really interesting. Um, it's also a given that this is about exploring the career of Kubrick it tells you a lot about the way he works with actors I don't think Kubrick did this all the time 
But one of the things about Kubrick is that while he's very meticulous and has a very clear idea of a film he wants to make, he has he take he does lots and lots of takes. And in this film, you realise he actually gives the actors quite a lot of opportunities to make the film they want to make, even though Kubrick is the one in control. He, um, you know, compare him to to Hitchcock. Hitchcock wouldn't deviate from his original script and storyboards, but in this, Kubrick knew that Sellers. Peter Sellers' great strength was improvisation. So he allowed Sellers to improvise so much that they almost had to give Peter Sellers script credit because he invented so many lines and so many things for the, for the script with his improvisations. Um, <clears throat> there's another great bit. Again, I don't know if you remember this in the film. There's a bit where George C. Scott is walking around chasing after the president in the war room, trying to talk him into doing something, and he falls over and just keeps talking. Do you remember that bit? Basically, George E. Scott falls over, does a forward roll, and just carries on talking without a pause. I yeah, don't remember the, that yeah, bit. Like missing the beat, yeah. That was an accident. George C. Scott didn't mean to do it, but the thing is, because he's a pro, he always says, you know, it's like a footballer who always plays to the whistle. George C. Scott carries on going until someone yells cut. So he did it. He fell over, and he thought, well, I've better got to carry on talking, so he just carried on doing it. Kubrick thought George C. Scott had done it on purpose, quite liked it, and left it in. So this film's quite interesting to see that although it's a comedy, and comedies actually have to be quite tightly controlled to work, and Kubrick is like one of the most tightly controlled directors of all time, it's very interesting how much room he gave his actors to actually do their thing. So that's really good. Um, I'll tell you something else about you know Kubrick and, and, and actors is that Peter Sellers' fee was half the budget for this film. Gee. <clears throat> so, it, you know, and he's playing like three parts as well. Um, he was almost going to play four parts. He was meant to play the pilot as well, but he injured himself and couldn't do it. So they got in uh, Slim Pickens to do that big cowboy character, which is really good. Um, it was critically acclaimed. The audiences loved it. It's a big hit. It did nearly $10 million against a $1 million budget, which is big money back then in 1964. Um, it's it's one of the biggest films that he did in sort of, if you you know it, compare it to the year that it was in, it was, um, it was number 12 out of all films in the US that year. So it's not quite in the top 10. But if you actually look at the numbers in the charts, there's a top five for that year, which is James Bond, My Fair Lady, Mary Poppins, some of these big blockbusters. And they're all doing like 25 or more million dollars in a huge. Every every other film below that is doing 10, 12 million dollars max. So apart from the James Bond films, basically, and the musicals, Doctor Stranger was like one of the biggest films of the year. Um, sadly, um, it was knocked out of the Oscars by My Fair Lady. Because um, the Academy loves a musical. My Fair Lady's a terrific film, but yeah. you know it's like um, it, My Fair Lady won Best Picture ahead of Doctor Strangelove. Its director George Cukor won Best Director ahead of Kubrick, and Rex Harrison, you can't even sing, won Best Actor ahead of Peter Sellers, who was who was at least <laughs> nominated for Best Actor, but um, didn't you know didn't didn't win. Um, although it's great that Peter Sellers, who is a comedy actor, and they don't often get the credit they deserve, he was nominated for an Oscar and for his acting, and I think Peter Sellers got taken very seriously after this. Um, Probably the most interesting thing about, well, you know, the thing I really like about this film is it, it, it marked kind of the end of the old order and it kind of started off the 60s, right? Um, there's a guy in The Guardian called John Patterson who wrote afterwards, there had been nothing in comedy like Dr. Strangelove ever before. All the gods before whom the America of the stolid, paranoid 50s had genuflected, the bomb, the Pentagon, the national security state, the president himself, Texan masculinity, and the uh, alleged commie menace, it went into the wood chipper and never got the same respect ever again. So this kind of style of people going, you know what, these are sacred cows? Fuck you, I'm killing them all off. So Kubrick kind of really, was really influential. He was really leading the 60s out 
with this film because he absolutely rips the whole kind of idea to bit to, to bits. Pete Sellers makes this phone call to the Russian president and the Russian president's drunk and it's like, hi, oh, Dimitri, are you okay? You know, how, do, how do you think I feel about it? It's so funny playing these lovely little details. The Nazi rocket scientist going mad in the war room and trying you know, to have to stop it. One of his hands seems to be operating with a mind of its own. Slim Pickens riding the missile down to its target like a rodeo bull. Um, even at the end, they can't stop fighting a cold war. Even as they talk about how they're going to have to live in bunkers for 100 years, they start saying, well, we better have bunkers than the Russians. We don't want to lose the bunker race. It's amazing. Um, and, and Peter Sellers, he's great in this because he plays three very different characters. And although Dr. Stranger is this big, mad character, the, the RA officer he plays is very nuanced. The president is very good. Um, but everyone remembers Dr. Strangelove going bonkers. He starts calling the president my Fuhrer and, he, and one, of his, one of his hands can't be controlled. Um, where does this sit for you with Kubrick films, mate? Is this one of your favourites? Oh, of the I ones you've seen? No, I really do like The Shining. Yeah, I really do like The Shining. I would, um, and the problem I have is, is that I would say Full Metal Jacket, but Full Metal Jacket's only good for the first hour, and then they go to Vietnam, and it's shit. It's it in is opinion, it's it's in in, it's interesting. Um, if if Kubrick had stuck to his guns and just done a movie about being trained for Vietnam, he might have actually made a, the greatest oh, Vietnam film. Yeah, because um, um, I think it was it was too. I mean, we'll, we'll obviously we will get to Full Metal Jacket towards towards the end of this year. But it, I, I think it was a tall order filming of Vietnam battle in in the London Docklands, and a lot of it was kind of. I mean that. I mean it, it is to be fair to it the only film that's set in in that more urban. War. Most of the other Vietnam films are all set in the jungle, so it does have that going for it. But yeah, I agree with you. I kind of prefer the first half of that. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favourites. It's it's just perfect. I mean, it's just absolutely spot on. It's a comedy about how we're all going to die, which is what I was going to say with like COVID. And you remember Don't Look Up came out, and that was kind of the same idea that, that there's a disaster and humanity isn't going to escape disaster because we're all idiots. It's that, and, and and thing with COVID, it's like, if you look at COVID, it's like, well, we can stop this being as bad as it is. If everyone pulls together and the people in charge are intelligent and do the right thing, oh shit, we're fucked. It's that same mentality. And Kubrick, Kubrick just looks at that and laughs. He goes, yeah, we're fucked, aren't we? And and, and laughs at it. It's brilliant, hmm. brilliant. <laughs> and he probably did a lot to kind of, while it's a, a comedy film, he probably did quite a lot to change attitudes. So yeah, so that's the yeah that's the Kubrick entry for this month, and it as always I like to see if I can get these Kubrick films to inspire an impromptu top ten. Uh, for this month, what I've decided to do uh, is a top ten of films featuring actors playing multiple roles. Um, Norbit. Eddie Murphy does feature in this list, but it's not Norbit. <laughs> <laughs> Jack and Jill. So, in the impromptu top 10 of films featuring actors playing multiple roles in no particular order, Eddie Murphy in Coming to America, uh, Michael Palin in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I mean, all the Python guys. Everyone in Monty Python. <laughs> but, but Michael Palin does the most. Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future Part 2, even playing his own teenage daughter. Um, Alec Guinness in Kind Hearts and Coronets, who's kind of the original gangster of this, uh, of this kind of idea. Uh, Lily Tomlin in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, Deborah Carr in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. James Remar in Django Unchained, which was uh, a nice little uh, Tarantino touch there. Mel Brooks in The History of the World Part 1. Uh, Nicolas Cage in Adaptation. And Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers. I've, apart from those last two, I've sort of resisted films where people play twins, because that's kind of a genre in its own right. But Nick Cage and Jeremy Irons are so good in those films, I think I thought they deserved to be on this list. So what you're telling me is, is that Norbert and Jack and Joel don't make the list? They do not make the list. What the fuck is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's the impromptu top 10 for this month, and that's the roundup for this month, unless you've got anything else to add, mate. No, I can't think of anything. Very good. Done it justice. Very good. Next month, the Kubrick country is going to be 2001 A Space Odyssey, so we're in serious sort of Kubrick incomplete control territory and uh, changing the world. 2001, and we're in July. Well, that's that right, yeah. For July, that's why. That's right, yeah. Already in the second half. My resolution is uh, to continue with the year-long project uh, uh, 2022 at Kubrick Odyssey. Each month I watch one of his films because I kind of squeezed his two early shorter ones in into January. I'm actually going to manage to do his entire filmography in one year. Uh, we're into the seventh film of his career, start of the second half of this project and of, you know, and I think it's the second half, you know, in a game of two halves of Kubrick's own career, 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. This is where he takes, you know, complete control of his films it's where he gained his reputation as a visionary filmmaker who essentially took over every single detail of his films, started doing films that were quite transformative. No one's done anything like this before. Um, you know, no one's, you know, no one's used equipment like this. He had to invent half of what he did. He, you know, would t- invent new film techniques, tell stories in entirely new different ways. And 2001 is the first, the first time he really, really properly does that. And, um, it's one of the films that, you know, he's best known for, I'd say. I mean, if you were to go look at a Kubrick um, obituary, I bet you there's a photograph of, of this probably at the top of the article. Yeah. Um, it's based on a short story, The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke. Stanley Kubrick, in developing this film, actually worked with Clarke on expanding the story, and they agreed that they'd do it as a film, uh, and in parallel, Arthur C. Clarke would, would write the expanded story up as a novel. So 2001 A Space Odyssey became a novel and a film. Uh, but the film came out after the film and, and they diverged a little bit in what, what to do in the story. Now, the story's roughly the same, but Arthur C. Clarke explains a lot more about what's happening than Kubrick. I think one of the the, the one of the key points of 2001 A Space Odyssey is that Kubrick purposely doesn't explain everything that's going on because he wants you to have a more intense experience. We're not going to just explain all this to you. You're just going to have to watch it and feel it. It's definitely what he wanted to do. Um, I mean, you've seen 2001, I, I assume, mate. What, what did you think of it? Oh, it's an absolute mind bender of a film. Um, but I think what I forgot about it is that it was shot in the sixties, like it was made back then, mm-hmm. which is what I think. If the only thing more mind bending, mind bending, sorry, than that plot is the fact that they managed to do that film back in the sixties. It's, it's a yeah. I mean, he's, defi- really he's definitely one of those people who's pr- pretty much had to invent what he was using to make the movie. Like um, like George Lucas with Star Wars, where he invented a whole new set of special effects to make his movie. This is what Kubrick did. Kubrick was actually credited with the special effects in this film, although there was a huge team of people. He was credited with like you know directing and controlling the special effects. So he, you know, no one has filmed everything from right at the start, where the guy's lying in his seat and and he's he's fallen asleep and his pen is floating in zero gravity because they're going up to the moon or the space station or whatever. It's just like, like you say, you watch it, and then you. But if you think about fucking hell, nineteen sixty-eight, man. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So I mean, there's kind of two things about two thousand one. There's what's going on in the actual story, and then there's what the film is out on a bigger level. What's going on in the story is obscure at some points, but you can you can kind of explain what's happening. What's going, what the film's about on a bigger level, is far more open to interpretation. But it's kind of about where we came from and where we're going, but. Aside from that, I think there are so many interpretations of this film. If you, if you do the basics, it starts with the dawn of man. The you know a hominid sort of you know humans haven't quite moved away from apes yet. Um, the you know you see them kind of you know the daily lives trying to stop you know trying to avoid being eaten by leopards, fighting each other for for you know food and water. Um, and then this monolith, clearly not a natural artifact, just appears. 
it causes something to click in early man uh, and that's where we start developing from our eight cousins into the dominant species with our ability to use tools and weapons and fuck each other over basically there's a famous jump cut of the bone flying through the air after that big fight uh, becoming a spaceship orbiting the earth uh, that's the cut through to the year, kind of some time, maybe a few months before actual 2001. Another monolith's been found on the moon. It's like basically looks like a giant kind of double blank domino, is what I've always said, and it's giant and mysterious, and it seems to be changing the world around it. The humans reach it on the moon. They try and analyze it, and what it does is it shakes them all up and sends some sort of transmission out to, and they, they trace the transmission to Jupiter, and they there's something's happening out in Jupiter, so they send a space space mission out to investigate. Um, it's a crew of two pilots, an artificial intelligence computer called HAL controlling the ship, three scientists in suspended animation who will be woken up when they get to Jupiter to study what's going on, um, and out they go. Um, and obviously what Kubrick does is he, he, it's the first like truly, truly realistic portrayal of space travel, isn't it? It's like, here's what is going on in orbit, the classical music as the ship docks. It's become a, I mean, it, it, it's, it's been, I'd seen three parodies of 2001 before I saw 2001, right? Uh, it's become such an iconic thing that, you, that a lot of people will have seen things referencing 2001 before they see the actual film, but the, the Strauss waltz as the ship goes through space. But there's a coldness, isn't it? It's kind of cold and dark and scary, and this ship isn't you know, going to hyperspace. Very it's isolated, a long, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a long, arduous journey out to Jupiter. And then the um, for reasons that are hinted at but not clear, how the computer turns on the crew um, and kills all but the pilot um, uh, Bowman, who disconnects Hal. Bowman continues on his own to Jupiter to finish the mission, mainly because he's got no choice. The ship's kind of on a, on a route there. He sees there's another monolith orbiting there. He's propelled into the stars from there through some sort of stargate into what appears to be a different dimensional realm. He's awestruck by the powers and forces he encounters there and enters a kind of different state of being and all sorts of weird stuff happens. He sees himself as an old man in what, in what looks like an old hotel room. Um, he watches himself eat. He watches himself as a young man watching himself. It's completely weird and freaky, and he appears to be reborn as a star child. I'm not spoiling the plot because, frankly, you can watch that and go, okay, well, I still need to watch it to have any idea what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's interesting. Have you seen the film 2010, James? It's the sequel to 2001. No. In that, right, they went back because Arthur C. Clarke wrote a trilogy of novels, so they went and did the second novel because people are interested in this sort of thing. It's a really good sci-fi film. It explains a lot of what happened in 2001. It explains why the computer turned on them. And it's really interesting to hear the explanation, but it's almost not necessary because you kind of make your own mind up about why, why the computer turned on them. Because really what it's about is we can make these computers and we can send people on missions and we're really clever and can send this technology out into space, but everything can still get really fucked up, right? Uh. And at the end of the day, it's not about how individuals might do on a given mission or how the, how the computer's going or anything like that. This is all part, when you actually get out into space, there's something much bigger and wider and more powerful than us happening. Kubrick was inspired to do this by the idea that, you know, reading up on science, there are millions of planets out there, countless planets out there. There's intelligent life on some of them. There must be just because they can't reach us or haven't reached us yet doesn't mean it's not out there, yeah? No. And what, what if some of that intelligent life is... 100,000 years ahead of us in their evolution. If you just imagine what, what it would be like if we, in the 21st century, went back and visited those hominids from the start of the movie, yeah? That would blow their minds, wouldn't it? Imagine <laughs> someone 100,000 years ahead of us. Like, how would, how would that influence the powers? 
Um, this was an inspiration for for Interstellar. There's a similar thing going on with Interstellar in that um, Nolan's exploring. Well, what what's you know what 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 forces are going on in the universe, and how, you know what happens when we get a bit closer to them. Um, it's really interesting watching it again. Um, I was really affected by one scene in which, at the end, when when Bowman is disconnecting, Hal Hal's pleading for his life. He's going. I'm scared. I'm better now. Don't do this. And Hal can't really explain why he's done what he's done. There is a reason. I don't want to spoil it. Go watch the film 2010. It's a really good movie. It explains what's going on. But that it's really interesting. This it's not just a computer that's that's killed people. The computer kills people, and then afterwards, when it says we're disconnecting you, he's going. Please don't do it. Don't kill me. And so, oh wow, that's really that's really effective. Do you know what I mean? Even though Kubrick builds these cold and slightly unemotional worlds, so there's a lot of emotion in there when you look. I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah. What I found out about this, I just thought this was a really intense experience. It's a genuinely, especially that last 20 minutes when you go through the Stargate, I found myself feeling like kind of strange watching all this stuff happening. And again, no CGI or practical effects. It's amazing what he did at the time. And, and as, as essentially a human being goes through a Stargate into a dimension it can't possibly, he can't possibly understand, I did feel myself going, oh, wow, this is fucking incredible. So weird and strange experience. Uh, and and you do you do find yourself thinking about length afterwards. I've you know you go and say I'm going to read a couple of articles about what other people say. What how do other people interpret this film? It really does get you thinking. Um, I mean I don't know if you've got any theories about what the film's really about, mate. Oh, I think that's that probably, a, that's point, probably that's another podcast. Point. That's yeah. I think that was also the point of it. You're not fully meant to try and get it. It's left yeah. mm -hmm. for our interpretation. One hundred percent. Yeah. Kubrick didn't want you to be thinking... Here's what Kubrick wanted to do. Kubrick wanted you to do what we did, which was after the movie, we can have a chat about it. Go and have a drink with someone, talk about what they thought about the film. While you're yeah. watching the film, you're just fucking feeling it. Do you know? Yeah. You're just, it's going straight into your nervous system, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I've actually booked on to go and see it on the big screen at the end of this month. I wasn't oh, able to book it, it before this, but I, it's the Prince Charles Cinema, which shows old classics all the time. Uh, and I, I just, I've, I think once in your life you need to see this on the big screen if you can. And I don't think there's many films you can say that about. We obviously prefer the cinema experience, and you'd always see great films on the big screen if you can. But if you would say, you know, pick five films that came out any time ever that you really should see once at the big screen in your life, this is definitely one of them. Yeah. So that's what, that's what we think about um, uh, about uh, two thousand and one. It's also about uh, partly about machines that can think for themselves or what happens when humans develop technology and you know all those themes around the creator and the created. Uh, and that inspired me to do the impromptu top 10 for this month, which is about uh, films featuring machines that can think for themselves and how that plays out in different stories. Uh, and that goes in no particular order. Blade Runner, Ex Machina, AI Artificial Intelligence, Terminator 2, Alien, Robocop, Ghost in the Shell, original version, The Iron Giant, Her, and The Matrix. There's millions more, but um, I can't believe you didn't put Team America in there. Oh, you know, maybe I should have put Team America in there. Bad Sorry. Intelligence. Bad intelligence. Yeah. If this was a top 11, that would include intelligence from Team America. <laughs> So yeah, that's the that's the Cuba country for this month. Um, next month we're on to a Clockwork Orange, so we're we're talking some pretty serious controversial <laughs> content now. So.
so my my news resolution for 2022 was to do another 12-month project along the lines of the John Carpenter one I did last year. Uh, and uh, this year is 2022, A Kubrick Odyssey, where I watch Kubrick's films in order, first to last. Had to do a bit of fancy footwork in the first month and watch his two sort of early films. But other than that, I'm going to get through all of his films this year in chronological order, because I think it's an interesting way to watch Kubrick's career progressing. We get to Clockwork Orange, 1971 is the one we're doing. This is his follow-up to 2001. Um, like 2001, it's science fiction. It's got a futuristic setting. There's some unsettling aspects to the story, and it's got classical music on the soundtrack. Apart from that, it couldn't be more different. Um, it's interesting this film comes out in 1971, because this is a year we keep coming back to. I mean, we, we did French Connection, which was kind of a, a milestone film from that year. We did Straw Dogs. When we were talking about those two films and the violence in them, we talked about Macbeth that came out that year, which was you know, quite shocking for its violence. Dirty Harry came out that year. This is almost like a pivotal year where a lot of things kind of really fall into place with movies and the sort of the violence on screen and the moral panic that ensued is that... I mean, the reason I'm sort of mentioning this is that the, 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 the context around Clockwork Orange is almost bigger than the film. This film became legendary when I was growing up because you heard about the controversy, how violent and depraved it supposedly was, but you couldn't watch it for yourself because it had been taken off release. And that only builds it up more, right? Clockwork Orange, bloody hell, right? Um, I first saw it on a presumably unauthorized copy projected at the University Film Society years and years ago. Then in the year 2000, I went to see it when it was finally released theatrically again after Kubrick's death, and I'm watching it again now. Those are the only times I've watched the film. It's not a film I re-watch. Um, and it's strange, really, because... I mean, have you seen Clockwork Orange, mate? I have. It is, it is quite a tough watch. <laughs> but for, despite being a tough watch, though, I wouldn't say it was as violent, or I wouldn't say the violence in it was as sort of extreme or as strong as, as films that have been made since, or even one or two films that were made that year. Um, I don't know. I still think that, you know, that scene, you know, yeah. you know the one I mean, um, that S- one's Singing still, in the Rain. Yes, that one. That's still pretty fucking brutal. Do you, know, do you know what it is about the violence in this film? It's, it's about... Because it's about young, a group of young men who are essentially a gang, a criminal gang. All the futuristic trappings, the clothing that they wear and everything is set in the future. But essentially it's, you know, the idea of any sort of gang who all dress the same and act the same and belong, you know, essentially do it for a sense of belonging. And, and here's the kicker. They, they, they love the violence. And I think it's the tone of the scene because everyone involved in that violence is really loving what they're doing. And that's what stuck with people all of these years. Do you know what I mean? I think, for, you know, for example, in, in a war film, you can show some real violence, but there's almost this element of, well, you can either say that it was a war and you're fighting the Nazis, so it, you know, it's, it's justifiable to betray it, or war is a horrendous thing, so it's justifiable to show that. Yeah. And this is, this is showing violence in a, in a way that says... Guy, it's also being shown from the point of view of the protagonist talking about how much he enjoyed murder, rape, and beating people up, and that's the bit more than the actual depiction of violence itself. That's what really screws people up watching this film. It's it's really dark because this guy is telling the story of how the good old days of when he was in a gang doing all this to people, and and singing singing in the rain while he's while he's kicking those people and it being set to classical music and very elegant and beautifully shot that that's what i think really is that's the gut punch for people because i think people just are, are, are upset by that and i think that was kubrick's intention he really wanted to make people really uncomfortable upset with this little shit look how much he loves his violence do you know what i mean um there's some 
There's some interesting bits where you can tell part of what Kubrick's talking about in the film because there's a bit where he's watching uh, a violent rape. When they, when they start to brainwash him against his violence to try and cure him, in, in, in his narration, he's watching the film and he said, funny how the colours of the real world only seem really real, real when you see them on a screen. And obviously there's something in that for Kubrick. He's partly commenting on the fact that, you know, violence is deplorable, but we don't have to watch a lot of it on screen. Do you know what I mean? Um, as, as for the film itself, I think all the futuristic talk has got slightly mixed results. All of that kind of uh, horror show, my brother, some of it works, some of it doesn't. Because it's set in the near future, it's very 70s, which just looks very grim. You know, it's it's, it's not exactly beautiful to, to look at. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, although I think it's beautiful. It's it's superbly done, but it's not very nice to look at. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's satire of authoritarianism, both left and right. Um, all the trappings of date of dated, but I think it's still, the, the, the underlying storyline still stands up. But it's just such a dislikable film. Um, it's quite. I mean, I guess it's quite interesting that toxic masculinity is portrayed very well in the film, and that's probably you know even more of a feature now. And if you watch anything like the Football Factory, or you know even though there's nothing like the quality of the same film, but if you watch like gang, you know, mafia films, any of these things, there is an element of these men like do some of what they do is because they're in a little group together, and that group group is important to them. Do you know what I mean? So there's some yeah. interesting dynamics in there. Um, there's some stuff. Um, it's deliberately disorientingly shot with special wide-angle lenses so that you would just feel uncomfortable watching what you were watching. Um, I quite like the way in which the story, <clears throat> it follows like that traditional young man's journey that you used, used to get in historical novels like Fielding's Tom Jones, Tristram Shandy, Huckleberry Finn. It's like watching the development journey of this young man. But the coming-of-age story of a violent psychopath, is it's clearly Kubrick has got his very, very dark sense of humour underneath all this. Um, and then at the end, when having been cured, he is then completely powerless in the real world because they might have cured him, but they haven't cured everybody else. Uh, and how his two former gangmates are now in the police because there's always room for a couple of thugs on the force. There's some very interesting commentary in the film. Um, interestingly enough, it was never actually banned. Uh, Kubrick just refused to let it be. He took he insisted on it being taken off cinema release in the UK and refused to allow it to be uh, released on home video. So the reason it was never shown wasn't that it was banned, it's that Kubrick was so upset by the response to it and a few copycat killings that he, he, he asked for it to be taken out of circulation. Um, so it's, you know, like I said, we've talked as much about the reaction to the film as, as, uh, as to the film itself, but that, that is kind of the story of the film. I mean, there's a famous storyline in which um, Malcolm McDowell, who plays uh, the main character, he went to Hollywood. He had a you know successful career over there as well. Uh, the first time he went to a Hollywood party where Gene Kelly was there, uh, Gene Kelly famously being the person who sang "Singing in the Rain" in you know in that that film originally and made it famous. Um, Gene Kelly walked out, wouldn't talk to Malcolm McDowell, and walked out because he was so offended by the way um, uh, Malcolm McDowell had used "Singing in the Rain" in that violent rape and murder scene. Um, so it's just the reaction to this film was so so strong, and that will always be part of the story. Yeah, um, which kind of brought me on to the impromptu top ten that I'd like to do for this film, because um, obviously the the incongruous sort of mixture of like a happy song like "Singing in the Rain" with like a horrible, deplorable, violent scene inspired me to look at another ten memorable or unsettling or contrasting uses of uh, music in a film. So in no particular order. Uh, Fallen with the Rolling Stones' Time Is On My Side. 
Silence of the Lambs with Goodbye Horses, American Psycho featuring uh, Hip to be Square by Huey Lewis, um, Reservoir Dogs Stuck in the Middle with You, obviously, uh, Boogie Nights featuring the power ballad Sister Christian during a shootout, um, Goodfellas using Atlantis by Donovan, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Orinoco Flow, uh, Gross Point Blank, I Can See Clearly Now, Lethal Weapon with Jingle Bell Rock, and Train Spotting with Perfect Day. So that's our impromptu top 10. Um, and that's Clockwork Orange. Uh, I'd have to say this isn't a film I'm going to be going to rewatch very often. It's obviously a film that you watch because it's almost like an important document. Kubrick's an important filmmaker. Um, but uh, I don't like this film and I don't think Kubrick wanted me to, I think is my final word on it. Um, and not liking it doesn't mean I didn't admire it and think it's brilliant, but I, I didn't. I found it a very dislikable film. So my, my film resolution is uh, the ongoing project for this year, which is um, the Kubrick uh, 2022 Kubrick Odyssey, where I watch each of his films in order. We're getting towards the end now. Um, this is his film from 1975, Barry Lyndon. Um, so this is set in the 18th century. Uh, it is, oddly enough, Kubrick's third choice of film to make at this time. He was working on his version of Napoleon, which he couldn't quite get off the ground, and which we'll do as one that got away. When that didn't work, he said he was in the mood to do a period drama. He tried uh, to do Vanity Fair based on uh, William uh, Makepeace Thackeray's film, uh, his novel. He decided that that wasn't right. That needs to be a TV series. Uh, Vanity Fair, you, you would have, you know, it's a ten-hour series, not a, not a film. So he didn't, he didn't do that. But he felt that this other Thackeray novel, Barry Lyndon, could be done as a two and a half-hour movie. Um, Despite not as Bing's first choice of film to do at that time, it is a masterpiece, and it is my favourite Kubrick film, albeit I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut yet. Um, it is, it's about a down-on-their-luck down on aristocratic family in Ireland. Uh, they're like minor aristocrats have fallen on hard times. Uh, Barry is a young man in love with his cousin, which has you know, sort of happened a lot in those days. He's too naive and arrogant to accept it when a wealthy English army officer wins her hand in marriage because the family needs the money. Um, he fights the man in a duel, wins, but has to flee the law because he's essentially shot a British army officer. Um, he runs off, joins the army, ends up in, in, in a war in Europe where his talent for ducking and diving gets him in trouble but creates opportunities for him to make his fortune. He ends up fighting on both sides of that war, deserts, takes up with a professional gambler running scams on the rich. Sees the opportunity to take over the name and title of a frail old English nobleman who has a young trophy wife who's got her eye on him. Um, he uh, he replaces that English nobleman who who sort of dies of of his exertions, uh, and now he has a name and a title and a, a route into the English establishment. However, the kind of rogue that he is doesn't fit with the uh, the English establishment. It's partly his own flaws as a person. It's partly the way the system works, and you see his um. It's there are no spoilers here because the film telegraphs what's going to happen. It's how it happens that matters. You see his downfall in that system. Um, it follows on from a Clockwork Orange uh, in that it follows the story and development of a young man with Kubrick's dark sensibility, but it's completely different apart from that. Um, it uses a lot of classical music on the soundtrack, the way his previous two films had done. But it's really it, it is his idea of a period drama. It uses. Um, the history of the era is a backdrop for an individual narrative and character study, but at the same time, it illustrates what that period of history was like. Um, the, the first half has more is more eventful. It's basically Barry succeeds because he can't hit a moving target. He's always dodging onto his next scheme. Then he finds himself inside the English rigid, rigid 
class system and he struggles to to make his way there because he's not respectful enough for them. Um, it is a masterful portrayal of decline and fall, both of the aristocracy itself and of his main character. The period detail, detail is amazing. You see 18th century battle scenes then Kubrick style. Um, a lot of effort went into realistic lighting of candlelit indoor scenes. He used the cameras that NASA used to film the, the, the moon landings to uh, so that he could have natural light in, in these candlelit scenes. So there's nothing else like it. Nothing else looks like this. The cinematography is stunning and won an Oscar. Um, apart from that, it wasn't as loved uh, when it came out critically, but its reputation has grown and grown over the years. Um, that's co very common for Kubrick because he doesn't make his audience comfortable. Um it's uh, it's beautiful. It's um, it sort of distances you from the period because it reminds you how different the 18th century was from now. But it also really brings that era to life, and it, it, it's like staring into a window of it. It, it influenced lots of films, including uh, Ridley Scott's The Duelists. Ryan O'Neill is very good in the main part. He's kind of often seen as a bit of a bland leading man, but I've seen him carry two films that you know the the, the Driver, which we talked about in the Walter Hill episode, and this where. An entire period epic sits on his shoulders because he's very good at playing this kind of person who doesn't have enough of his own character or background to succeed by legitimate means um, and can't play the aristoc aristocratic game. And you watch him thrash around and, and, and succeed, sometimes fail, sometimes. Um, and, and, and overlaying it all is uh, Kubrick's got this ruthless eye for human weakness, showing you what people are like. Um the epilogue kind of tells you what Kubrick's trying to say about this film. I'm not going to tell you what, what you know what happens in the story. Watch it. It's got some amazing duels where you see how terrified the people fighting the duel are. It brings the whole story to life. It's beautifully made, performed, acted. The whole thing is is, is gorgeous. Um, the the title card says it was in the reign of George the Third in the 18th century that the aforesaid personages lived and quarrelled, good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor. They are all equal now. As in, they're all dead. Do you know what I mean? And none of this matters. It's, you know, more bleak Kubrick for you. Um, at the Oscars, it got quite a few nominations, but it missed out on Best Picture and Best Director. It won for Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design, and um, an Original Score, actually, even though a lot of classical music was on there. So it did well um, at the Oscars. Unluckily, it was the year of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, so that's why Best Director and Best Picture went elsewhere. Um, so Stanley Kubrick's bad luck at the Oscars continues, but at least he didn't lose out to another fucking musical, which is what happened the last couple of times. Um, and interesting, the, the one thing that ties it to our conspiracy episode is that um, the use of cameras that NASA used to film the moon landings was the birth of several conspiracy theories about Kubrick, which we'll cover in real two. There's a little teaser for you. Um, the other thing I, I always do when I do my uh, my Kubrick entry for the month is I give you an impromptu top 10. And this one's pretty simple. It's films set in the 18th century of, of various kinds. Uh, and in no particular order, the impromptu top 10 of other 18th century films that uh, you should check out are Last of the Mohicans, Amadeus, Dangerous Liaisons, The Mission, Danton, Sense and Sensibility, The Favourite, Hamilton, the filmed um, production, A Tale of Two Cities and Tom Jones. Uh, two other highly recommended films set in the era which I haven't seen but want to, which deserve a mention, uh, A Royal Affair and The Brotherhood of the Wolf. I just thought I'd mention those. Uh, another 18th century film you could have thrown in for shits and giggles was the first Pirates of the Caribbean films. Hooray! So that's the, um, that's the Kubrick film uh, for this month. Next month we're doing The Shining, one of his most talked go. about films, and I think that's going to be one where you weigh in a fair bit as well because you've seen that a number of times, haven't you, mate? Yeah, you, you. The start of this year, you were talking about films. Uh, I'm pretty sure you just made up in your own fucking head. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, that's uh, that's it. We are getting into the most sort of famous and recent and well-known era of, of Kubrick. Uh, we're well in that now. My resolution is to continue 2022 A Kubrick Odyssey, uh, in which we look at uh, each of Kubrick's films month by month in chronological order. We're getting towards the end of the year, so we're getting towards the end of the list. 1980s The Shining. Now, this is one of his most talked about films. Now, you've, you've seen The Shining a number of times, haven't you, mate? Yes. Where does it sit for you in the... Uh, uh, the uh, Kubrick pantheon. See, I struggle with Kubrick because the first hour of Full Metal Jacket is Kubrick's best bit of cinema, in my opinion. It's just my favourite. It's it's it relies a lot on um, what's his name? R. L. Ermy is that his name? Yeah, R. Lee Ermy. The uh, R. Lee Ermy. Yeah, yeah. The the drill instructor. Yeah, it relies a lot on him, but it's still my favourite. I think it's brilliant, and it sets up what could be a really interesting film and then it just kind of goes to shit just because yeah. it's, it's just it's a bit of a kind of lame um, Vietnam style film towards the end it's not terrible but the first hour is impeccable yeah. whereas I feel like The Shining doesn't have that kind of just hour of being unbelievably good comp- yeah. as good as um, the first hour of Full Metal Jacket but on the whole I think it's still I think it might be Kubrick's best in my opinion yeah um, it's very creepy it's quite scary um, but I think it it's I think it's very good. I think it's I think it's his best in terms of overall because it doesn't it doesn't falter and fall off as much as Full Metal Jacket does. Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean some people will talk about two thousand one being his best film. My favourite film of his is Barry Lyndon, but I mean the shining is uh well I mean we'll we'll, we'll, we'll you know we'll come to what I thought about it. I think it's technically flawless. I think it is in terms mm. of cinematic presentation, in terms of a director saying, This is what I do and this is how I'm gonna do it, it's absolutely on the absolute top level he's done some incredible things in this film and it's obviously one of his most talked about films partly because it was really divisive among Stephen King fans a lot of Stephen King fans hated this film because he changed it a lot from the original novel um for me right it is different from the novel and I think the novel is amazing it's I think it's possibly Stephen King's best best book and or certainly the my favorite of the books of his that, that I've read um but I like the film even though it's very different I just see them as two different entities do you know what I mean um, but interestingly, here's a fun fact for you. The first ever Razzies ceremony there, the, the Golden Raspberry Awards for the worst films or worst performances in films of a given year, that was the first ever year. Most of that small initial group of voters in the Razzies were all Stephen King fanboys. And they because they hated this so much, they gave Stanley Kubrick a worst director nomination at the Razzies. So Stanley Kubrick has a Razzie nomination for worst director for The Shining. Where... <laughs> What are you talking about? It's like, wow, you can disagree with a choice, but come on, that's one of the worst. That's the worst director. Fuck you, buddy. You know, um, for me, I agree with you. I think the film is really unsettling from the off. Just as that, just as um, Jack Nicholson is, you know, you get that overhead shot of, of the car driving to the hotel for his job interview. He, from from the opening, you're like, oh, this, do you know what I mean? You just feel you just feel off from the beginning. You know, it builds an incredible atmosphere, which it more or less sustains more or less throughout the film. It's obviously got these really famous. Uh, from Stanley Kubrick's films, it's got some of his most quotable or, or kind of you know famous individual scenes, hasn't it? You've got the blood sort of pouring in the corridor. You've got the kids saying red rum. You've got Jack Nicholson saying here's Johnny as he tries to smash down the door. Um, it's got sort of an electronic score, which is suitably disturbing, really, sh- you know, really quite shaky. First time I ever saw this film, I was quite young, scared the shit out of me. Um, but like I say, most people agree the film is pretty much flawless in terms of cinematic technique but not everyone loves his creative choices um 
the first thing that gets debated is that it downplays the personal demons and sort of alcoholism of the central character, which was one of King, Stephen King's main themes in the book. Stephen King meant this book as kind of an allegory for addiction. This guy is a decent bloke, but because he is a recovering alcoholic, it means he's done stuff in his past that he's ashamed of. That demon, that monkey is always on his back. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is not surprising given Stephen King's own personal issues with addiction. Just Kubrick had a very different different concern. So he made it more about almost like obsession. Mm. You know, because Stanley Kubrick, especially later on, it was you know, it took him five years to get this film made. It took him seven years to get Full Metal Jacket made and 12 years to get um, this film after that made. He, he was almost used to get paralyzed by his own brain. He would get obsessive about detail. Do you know, he'd spend... There's this brilliant story about the trailer for Full Metal Jacket. He spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks with the voiceover actor doing the trailer for Full Metal Jacket. Do you know what I mean? He, he would get absolutely bogged down in details. He couldn't... Um, there's a brilliant story about how he was obsessed with having all this stuff organised. Uh, and he was... So he would buy lots of stationery from Ryman Stationers because right. he's in the UK. And he actually wrote to Ryman Stationers asking them for like information about the different options and what they could do with their stationery to help him organize his stuff better. And I think for him, all that stuff with the typewriter and Jack Nicholson's character struggling with himself in the film, that's Kubrick's own talking about it being obsessive and, and, and how that can kind of drive you mad. So Kubrick wanted to make a film about someone being driven mad, but about something totally different to what Stephen King wanted to write about. And either you like what he did or you don't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Also, Kubrick likes, he did this with 2001 as well. He likes to, to make things less specific in the movie because then the whole audience can get, you know, if someone goes, well, I've never had a problem with alcoholism, fuck this guy. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Kubrick's like, anyone would be fucked in this hotel. Do you know what I mean? Anyone's personal demons would come out in this hotel. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't that interested in the ghost elements, which some people don't like. Um, he changed the Halloran character. Um, you know, the black guy's the head chef. Yeah. He's really good with uh, with the kid, uh, with Danny at the beginning, uh, and he comes back later. Um, Kubrick changed the story, cut the storyline quite short, quite abruptly. Some viewers find that frustrating. I don't know what you thought about that, because he's in and then he's out. Do you know what I mean? Um. Yeah, I remember reading the book, and it seems like he has a bit more of a prominent part in the book, and I didn't see it as much in the film. Yeah, because when he comes back to the hotel, he gets involved a lot more with Danny and Danny's mum. You know, spoiler alert, Jack Nicholson goes nuts in the hotel and tries to kill his family. Halloran comes back, partly because he can communicate telepathically with Danny, which you do see in the film, to be fair. But then his involvement is much shorter and much less when he does get to the hotel. It's a, it's a choice. It's a choice Kubrick made. And obviously he changed the ending, which frankly was a lot about what would work with current special effects. Apparently he wanted to do something with the maze coming alive which you could do now, but you couldn't do then. It just it was people pushing bits of hedge around. He said, it didn't look right, we're not doing it. Hmm. Um, so he did something different with the ending. And for me, I think it's a case of it. Most of what he did, and a couple, I'll come to a couple of things that I, I a couple of things I, I quibble with. The vast majority of what he did was worked as a film. It just tells a different story to what Stephen King's trying to tell. And you take your choice. Yeah. What I would say, what... What, what did you think of the casting? What did you think of the casting of Shelley Duvall as the wife and Jack Nicholson as as the main character? I think Shelley Duvall was a perfectly decent cast, like casting, because she plays the part very well. You know, she, she kind of plays that stereotypical um, 
character whose partner's become a bit of a psychopath, but yeah. she does well in the film. I kind of agree with Stephen King's point about casting Jack Nicholson because the whole point of The Shining is that the writer just seems like a normal guy and then he just completely loses it when he gets to the the yeah. hotel. And Jack Nicholson's always looked a little bit unhinged. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that point. Re- regarding Shelley Duval as the wife, I think what a lot of people complain about is that she just seems like this frightened mouse the whole time. Right. Well, I think what Kubrick was trying to do personally when I was watching it is really just trying to drive home how terrified and helpless you would be in that situation. Do you know what I mean? Films, yeah. and, films and books often show people always being brave and knowing what to do in horrific situations. But the truth is that most of us would be like a rabbit in headlights. And that is Kubrick's view of humanity is, come on, guys, you wouldn't you wouldn't deal with this very well. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so he shows her just being like a rabbit in headlights. She does dig away out of the situation in, in her own way. But sometimes I thought it was a bit, it was like, she's just, she's almost like, oh, she drops the knife. Fuck off, don't drop the knife. Do you know what I mean? But I think yeah. in reality, people would crumble and stumble and make mistakes in that situation. And Kubrick's, that's that's the way Kubrick portrays humanity. He just does. That's why that shot, it's an amazing shot where Jack Nicholson is looking down at the maze and you see his point of view of the miniature of the maze. There's a miniature model of it. And then you look down, you look down, you look down, and you see two people walking through the maze and it's the wife and the son in miniature. That's how Kubrick looks at humanity. He's looking from up above and going, look at the, those tiny little people in, in the maze. That's that's his view of that's his view of the world. Um, there was talk of Jessica Lang being discussed for that part, which I would have liked to have seen. Because Jessica Lang's an amazing mm. actress. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you about Jack Nicholson. The first time I see him, I say, that bloke's going to go mad and attack his family with an axe if he's, <laughs> he's left in that hotel for the winter. Do you know what I mean? Um, there were other choices. Uh, Robert De Niro. Oh. I'm not... I, I, Having seen Taxi Driver, the audience is already thinking, well, there's a bloke who can go mad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Harrison Ford was considered, but Stanley That would have been a good choice, yeah. Here's an interesting one. Robin Williams was considered for it. Now, Robin Williams was not seen back then as someone who who would do stuff outside of comedy. But if we look at what he went on to do since, he's done dramatic roles, he's done comedy roles, he's played people who who are psychotic and have gone around the twist. Um, That would have been interesting. I think that would have been really interesting. Robert Williams would have, been, would have given his fucking right arm, his hairy right arm, to do a part like this back then. Do you know what I mean? Um, but we'll never know. It's Jack Nicholson. And, and it, Jack Nicholson has become iconic for what he did do in this movie. So we're kind of stuck with it, aren't we? Yeah. But I mean, all in, th- these are quibbles about a film, which I still think just works incredibly well. I mean, the twin girls in the um, in the corridor and the, the blood. I mean, some of that is just so fucking amazingly done very few people have done horror scenes as well as that it's just you know it's he was absolutely at the top of this of his game when he did all of that so that that's where we go with it um yeah definitely one of his best films for me um and obviously one of his most talked about and uh, and controversial now as i always do on this uh, uh in this feature it always inspires an impromptu top 10 and for this month because of the uh, the production and background of the shining uh, i've done top 10 film adaptations the original author hated apart from The Shining obviously so these are films that for one reason or another the um, the author of the original novel sort of disowned them uh, Mary Poppins American Psycho Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, The Birds Cool Hand Luke The Witches Midnight Express V for Vendetta 
and the Warriors. Uh, v for Vendetta, frankly, you could have put any adaptation of an Alan Moore story on here because he hates <laughs> all of them. And I have just noted that there are um, two, um, uh, three, in fact, uh, Roald Dahl adaptations. So obviously he was hard to please when people did films of his uh, of his books as well. But uh, those are all films that I actually like or, or that are seen as good films. And for one reason or another, the, the author hated them. And I think that's a, an example of the, the fact that... Um, Films and films and books are different things, and that happens, you know. You could have thrown in a Clockwork Orange or Straw Dogs, but because we'd done them on the pod before, I decided not to put them in. So oh, that's uh, that's our Kubrick entry for this month. We're, we're getting towards the end now because Kubrick starts to take far too long over making his films, and next month we will be doing Full Metal Jacket, which has some interesting talking points, which James has already alluded to, which was a nice preview of what we're going to get into next month. Whoopsies! <laughs> no, no, it's good, mate. It's good that it's good that you uh, it's good that you whetted everyone's appetite. So my resolution uh, is to continue and bring to its uh, looming conclusion 2022 Kubrick Odyssey, in which I watch all of Stanley Kubrick's films in order. Uh, month by month, we're going through his filmography. So we started with his very early 50s stuff, and we're closing in as we get at the end of the year with his sort of final films. Uh, and for November, we are talking about Full Metal Jacket, which is Stanley Kubrick's 1987 uh, Vietnam film. Um he is um, as a another another listener, Graham, who I uh, didn't uh, honestly. The, the, his uh, his message came in late last night, and I, I didn't put it on the list. I just want to mention it now. He did say, uh, "Really good film, but weird that it was filmed in the London Docklands." And I think that's the story of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket: is that Stanley Kubrick set out to make a film about the Vietnam War, which, like all of the films he's done since, uh, I think. Lolita. So for the last almost 40 years of his career, he's not going to leave the UK. And that kind of defines the film. We'll go into the film, you know, and, and go through it. But how this film eventually ends up is heavily, heavily influenced by the fact that he chose to make a movie um, set in the Vietnam War, which is in Southeast Asia, and film it exclusively, with, with, the, with the exception of some, ex, you know, second unit, you know, shots of Virginia for the training for the training camp. Uh, apart from that, this is all made in London, which is really weird. Um, and, and I think that's that, that's going to come up when I talk about this film. You've seen the Full Metal Jacket, mate, of course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I love it. Yeah. Well, no, I love the first hour and 20 minutes. I think the last hour or so is a bit, a bit weak. But yeah, the, the boot camp bit is some of the best cinema you will ever see. That, that, and that, again, that is the story. Um, so, so to give it a bit of a, a background... Uh, Full Metal Jacket came out in 1987. There was a seven-year gap for Kubrick between that and his previous film, The Shining. This is the other story of Kubrick's career that he started to take longer and longer to make his films. Uh, he he was he was making a film every three or four years uh, until Barry Lyndon, uh, where then he had a five-year gap to The Shining and a seven-year gap to uh, Full Metal Jacket and then a 12-year gap to next month's film, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, it's based on a novel by a guy called Gustav Hasford, who was a former Vietnam War correspondent. Uh, who is very similar to the central character of the film Joker. He was uh, drafted in, uh, or, or you know, like a lot of young guys, was you know, joined the military in the 60s. He was in the Marines and, and became a combat correspondent. Uh, that was his chosen duty. It's also combined with the writings of a bloke called Michael Hare, who was an actual uh, war correspondent as well, who he wrote extensively about the Vietnam War. 
his book Dispatches is regarded as one of the best ever books about war from the the um, the, the point of view of a correspondent and influenced the filming of Apocalypse Now. Vietnam was huge back then. I don't know how much of a thing Vietnam films are for you, mate. Um, but back then in the 80s, you had Platoon, the Hamburger Hill, The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now had come out in the late 70s and were kind of almost like required viewing when I was a kid. Yeah. Vietnam, very, Vietnam was very much a thing. Amer- America was looking back on Vietnam back then. It was a cultural phenomenon. Um, I don't know what the Vietnam War means to you. I, I, don't, I, I mean, obviously, you've studied your history, so you know about the war, but it's not... Um, I don't think it's as it's much culturally a thing for you, is it? You know, like... No, I know it was an absolute mess, and it was part of, you know, obviously, America's Cold War paranoia, and it just ended up being an absolute embarrassment for them. Um, yeah, but I mean, if, if you look at, like, Tropic Thunder, which is like a spoof of the whole Vietnam War phenomenon, one of the things about that is that every big actor would consider doing a Vietnam film, and every big director would consider making one. For a period of time in the 70s, 80s, Vietnam was like... It was like, I'll do my gangster film, and then I'll do my... Um, uh, a sort of drama film, and then I'm going to do my Vietnam film. Couple of Scorsese never done, but it was like we're going to do one. The film was a big hit, um, so it was very successful, um, and it's full of iconic scenes. But as you say, most of those iconic scenes are the things it's best remembered for is the first half, basic training, which is utterly gripping stuff. I think it's some of the best stuff Kubrick's ever put on screen. I think it is the. There've been several films about training men for war. And I think this is the best one. This is the best basic training story that's ever been filmed. It's fucking incredible. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you don't even want to say too much about it because you don't want to spoil it for anyone who's not seen it. But I imagine everyone listening has seen it and knows how good it is. Yeah, yeah. But just, just suffice to say, Kubrick wanted to make this as realistic as possible. I mean, it revolves especially around the central three central characters. There's... Uh, uh, there's Joker played by Matthew Modine there's Pyle these are like the recruits that are being trained there's Pyle played by Vincent D'Onofrio and Arliss Howard who plays the other one is it Cowboy? yeah Cowboy who's the other one who you know who um, who is one of the other sort of the three main characters although there's, there's a room full of recruits those are the three main characters and they're being trained by a drill instructor played by Arlie Ermey who was a drill instructor in real life and that was one of those things. Stanley Kubrick was, you know, desperate for a bit of um, re- realism. What he wanted to do was he wanted to do a really realistic portrayal of, of basic training, um, and then tell a very dark story around that. Now that dark story reflects what's in the book, but it's also very much what Kubrick wanted to show. This, I mean, if you contrast this basic training story with, say, an officer and a gentleman, which is all, you know, the the drill instructor is uh, basically the hero of the story in a lot of ways. Uh, this is a very different interpretation of that, and much darker. Um, but Kubrick wanted it to be utterly realistic. He was he was he was offering this part to to actors to play a drill, uh, drill instructor. Ed Harris was originally offered the part, but turned it down. Interestingly, he was. I think Ed Harris would have been good, but I think that what happened with this was obviously didn't they wanted him to they wanted Arlie Army to consult, and then Ed Harris, like you said, was offered it. But I don't think anyone could have no with all the advice in the world could have. There's, there's two versions of the story. One version, and Ali Ermi is a bit of an unreliable narrator. He gives a lot of interviews where he says this or that happened, and then everyone else who was involved in him says, no, that's bollocks. But either it was part of his dealings with Kubrick, where Kubrick realized, wow, this guy really, this this is what a drill instructor's like. Do you know what I mean? It was either that and or the fact that Ali Ermi was, he did the, you know, they always do boot camp for the actors. And Ali yeah. Ermi was the drill instructor for the boot camp. And they were filming it because Kubrick films everything. And when Kubrick saw the footage, he went, that's my drill instructor. Why, why get someone to try and do that? Do you know what I mean? 
I'd much rather just get him to do it and point a camera at him. So that's why he's the he's the uh, he's the guy, and he absolutely makes it. I mean, he's you know the drill instructor. I mean, I I this film came out when I was a teenager. Sports teams that I was in, we would when we had to go and do our two or three laps of the pitch at the start of training, we'd be singing drill instructor songs because we'd seen this film. Do you know what I mean? It was it it wasn't just kind of. You know, it, it totally crossed over. People who weren't necessarily that into films watched this, watched The Drill Instructor, had various quotes. He totally make, makes that story. Um, but obviously it's very, very dark. And then we... Um, but then we go into the, the second half. And as you say, the second half does not match up to the first. And you had an idea, and we talked about this before, mate, to maybe make it just about basic training. Yeah, I don't think the film needs to be, like, Full Metal Jacket needed to be as long as it was. I think the problem that they kind of fell into is that they had about an hour, just over an hour of the boot camp stuff and they thought, well, we can't just leave it at an hour. But I do I do think that the urban battle sequences are very, very weak. Yeah, they are just, they don't work very well. I, you know, you've got I, to appreciate I, yeah. the fact... I tend to I tend to agree. Apart from the very end, I think the last kind of ten minutes is fucking superb. But yeah. a lot of the Vietnam stuff is is like you say, it is it not not only weaker than the first half of the film, but a lot weaker than other Vietnam films that came out at the time. I, um, I do very much agree. So, so would you would you have made it just about the basic training? Would you would you have expanded that story? Yeah, because I do I do feel like the ending of the boot camp sequence is quite fucking shocking, um, because. Spoiler alert, Private Pyle absolutely loses his mind. Basic training breaks him. He's picked on by Arlie Army for being a fat slob. And it's constant harassment every day um, for the entire, you know, the entire day. He doesn't get a moment just to himself where he isn't being harassed by his drill sergeant. And he snaps, shoots his drill sergeant with um, a rifle and then turns the gun on himself. Yeah, I mean... And at that point you're like, holy fuck. And it's, you it's could very, end it's the very, film. Very, it's very, very hard for the rest of the film to live up to that climax, isn't it? And you could end the film. Though. You could talk. You could look and maybe, maybe don't have um, Private Joker as the um, the protagonist. Maybe try and focus on Private Pilot as the kind of main character and see how he starts as this kind of chubby uh, guy going into boot camp who's trying to serve his country, and it just ends up fucking breaking him to the point of yeah. you know, psychosis. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be in a more interesting film, but obviously that's yeah, not what we got. Yeah, I mean, obviously you'd have to expand it a little bit. You'd, you'd actually have to have more, more, you know, of of the basic training because the, the film needs to be at least kind of ninety minutes, and the 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 the, the, um, the basic training sequence is only an hour long. I was thinking maybe they could have a war exercise that goes horribly wrong. Yeah, you could still have the final ending, but you could have more happening, sort of building up, and then you could have sort of satirise the combat by you know showing them a war exercise in the local swampland. And if it's if it's them against each other, you can like kind of that can be a metaphor for essentially America was at war with itself in Vietnam. Sounds a bit wanky, but you know that's the sort of thing. The pro- the problem the problem I had that right is that the book tells the story of the basic training experiences of the main character and also then everything he um, he learned and saw in the war as a correspondent, seeing various he sees the Tet Offensive, he sees Khaesan, he sees Hue. He sees various things, and as as the combat correspondent, you, you get the story of the war through the eyes of the combat correspondent, how it's going, how that affects the soldiers, how America's war sort of gets literally stuck in the mud, and the the book is one of the you know the, the two books that it's drawn from have all of this amazing stuff about what the war was like, and I guess you could just do the um, the the 
the, the 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 basic training stuff but whoever picked up that book to make a film of it would want to put all the other stuff in as well it's just really really hard for them to let it go yeah. I, I think you see the the I think the reason that the second half is is weaker is simply because it was too limiting to try and film it all in England. It's a brilliant technical achievement to make the London Docklands look at all like Vietnam. Of course, yeah. But it's massively dramatically limiting. I mean, you know, Francis Ford Coppola went to the Philippines. Oliver Stone went to Thailand to make Apocalypse Now and uh, and Platoon. And Platoon's a really good example. Platoon is not that historically accurate in terms of the events of the film because in one one-year like tour of like conscripted soldiers they kind of see everything that happened in the war and no no 12 month period for like one platoon of soldiers would ever be that eventful but but stone went oh if i do it like this it tells you everything that went on in the war but he had to go fucking somewhere in asia to make it look right yeah and what you what you miss is that a, a war correspondent jumps on a helicopter and goes to all parts of vietnam and shows you what's going on and that was a perspective that you wouldn't get in other films. You know, Private Joker can then go to, he can go to Huey, he can go to Kaysan, he can, but he can go to the jungle, he can go to these other settings. And with that kind of voiceover, that narrative of what's going on in the war, he can give you what Kubrick was trying for, which was, this is what the war was like. Do you know what mm. I mean? But Kubrick's basically got about three sets that he can use because he's doing it in the London Docklands. For me, it's a bit like when uh, Nolan set some limits on himself like no cgi no this no that yeah for, for dunkirk it's like well fine but you've limited yourself about stuff that really the audience needs to see to get what you're trying to say and i i think i think we'd be talking about the second half w- with a lot more enthusiasm if coppola wasn't afraid of flying sorry if kubrick wasn't afraid of flying and and had gone and shot in fucking guam or something so that he could have done more of the story and actually done more combat intensity because when he when he when he really lets go in the the sniper battle at the end and and they're being shot that's good because there's not many vietnam films that show like urban urban warfare secondly it's really really brilliantly shot but a lot of it is like all right we can only film from this angle right because we're in fucking beckton right we're using an old gas works this is all we can fucking do and it's like if they could just have people jumping out of a helicopter and running into a jungle to actually show you what war was actually like. I think the second half sequences would have been a lot better. Um, you still have the the dramatic problem of the climax of the film is halfway through. So maybe you do it in some sort of flashback. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you tell the stories in parallel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant film followed by a kind of, you know, not nearly as good. Um, I tend to agree with you, mate. The, the, the Vietnam sequences are not as good. If you want to see what the, you know, the best Vietnam War sequences, uh, you're still looking at well, the actual combat. You're still looking at Platoon and Apocalypse now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, very good. It was a, it was an iconic film at the time, and it's just that for that that's w- worth watching just for that first hour, isn't it? Oh, totally. the The first hour is phenomenal. It's ridiculously good. Yeah, really, really good. So. So as always, I do an impromptu top 10 in connection with my uh, my Cuba Country film in which I find 10, 10 films or, or, or 10, 10 things from cinema that inspired me to do with this film. And the thing that inspired me about this film or the, the, one of the big stories of this film is that there was this huge impact made by someone who was a non-professional actor who'd been brought in to make the movie. Uh, so my impromptu top 10 in honour of that is the impromptu top 10 performances by non-professional or debut actors. Um, people who weren't professional actors or weren't kind of the, the movie star, but somehow ended up making the film. Uh, and that includes, in no particular order, Barkhad Abdi and Captain Phillips, 
some of these people went on to be professional actors, but this is when they were just brought in. Uh, Hang S. Noor uh, in The Killing Fields. Abraham Atta in Beasts of No Nation. Uh, Stu Rutherford in What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, Darlene Cates in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Charlotte Copley in District 9. Believe it or not, he wasn't a professional actor before he did that movie. Uh, Roddy Piper in They Live. Pretty much everyone in City of God. Pretty much everyone in Gomorrah. And Alex Hibbert in Moonlight. So that's my impromptu top 10, and that's the Cuba country for this month. Uh, we reach our climax. We reach the end of this project uh, in December next month when we do Kubrick's final film, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. My New Year's resolution was to, to do this year-long project, uh, 2022 Kubrick Odyssey, in which I watch all of Kubrick's films. And given this is December, uh, we are now bringing this project to its shattering climax in which we watch Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, came out in 1999, uh, famously starred real-life husband and wife Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Almost as famously, it seemed to put them under a great deal of pressure and they actually split up not long after this film came out. Um, and, you know, B Stanley Kubrick died after completing the film but before it was released, adding to an air of mystery around him and the film. So there's a lot to discuss in the film as well. Um, you seen Eyes Wide Shut? Uh, no, but I know what it's about. Yeah, so, and, and one of the things that I think we'll, we'll, we'll cover is that when we did um, conspiracies and film-related conspiracies earlier in the, in, in the podcast, and we also went into this sort of thing in more detail on the, the companion podcast on, uh, uh, on the Adamsons versus the, the conspiracy theory, there is a conspiracy around this that the Illuminati or the, the, you know, the rich elites killed Kubrick for revealing what they, get, they, what they get up to at their sex parties like the Epstein stuff. And I think I'll, I'll mention that as, as we go through it. So Eyes Wide Shut is based on an old Austrian novel, which uh, translates uh, as Dream Story from its, from its German title. Uh, Kubrick wanted to make this film for about 30 years. He even considered doing it um, in the early 80s as more of an out-and-out -out sort of farcical comedy with Steve Martin. Steve Martin had done a couple of kind of slightly more dramatic roles. So he'd done his comedies and then he'd done a couple of kind of more serious kind of dark stuff like Pennies from Heaven and uh, Stanley Kubrick considered him in the Tom Cruise role, which would, would have been a very different film. Um, but essentially what, it, what, what the film is about is um, Tom Cruise plays a, a successful doctor in New York. Uh, he, he and his wife, Nicole Kidman, are doing well for themselves, but not as well as, as Tom Cruise's wealthy patients, if you see what I mean. They go to this party where they have a glimpse of how like the super wealthy live. They're having a great time. Um, they get home afterwards. There's a couple of incidents at the uh, at the party where it turns out that his 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 patient and friend has been having you know having sex on the side with a prostitute and she overdoses on drugs and he um he discreetly deals with it and helps the girl you know not die and cause a scene and everything um and at the party he's propositioned by two women and and she's propositioned by a sort of a charming smoothie sort of older man. And afterwards, maybe a couple of days later, they talk about how, you know, Tom Cruise seems quite complacent and relaxed about men chatting his wife up because he knows that she'd never do anything. She reveals that actually she sometimes fantasizes about, you know, having affairs or even leaving them because because that's what people do. This throws him for a complete loop. And um, 
he uh, he goes off on this kind of journey. He's so thrown off. He loses all his confidence in this kind of you know secure existence he's been living, where he's the one. His wife's at home looking after the kids, and he's the one that that's getting chatted up. I think is the issue, right? And suddenly he realizes that his wife is you know just as capable as as he is of of having an affair, and, and almost did, and that really blows his mind. Uh, and he goes off and goes on this kind of. Um, almost in like an odyssey where he sneaks into like a wealthy sex party that he hears about. And this is where all of this stuff about, you know, masked people and, and Masonic kind of rituals. Uh, and they, they, they unmask him and threaten his life if he tells anyone about what's going on. Uh, and while he's going around there, he sees various other things like a prostitute propositions him on the street. He sees like a, a man kind of almost trafficking his teenage daughter because he realizes that there's money to be made. Uh, and 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 at the end of it, he kind of realizes that he's um, he needs to talk to his wife about what's been going on, basically. And it's um, it's 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 a weird film. And what I'll say is this: is that I watched it, and I thought about it, and I made a couple of notes about the film for for this podcast because this, that's what I do. And I sort of went, I actually need to watch this again. Because there's always so much going on in Kubrick films, and most of his other films I've watched more than once. Like not his early ones, you know what I mean? The the the, the early couple that I did at the beginning, um, but everything from the Killing onwards, I've 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 seen mo- most of his films. I've seen multiple times. Put it that way, and it's like, can a film that's got so much going on in it, can I adequately talk about it after just one viewing? And even after the second viewing, I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm not sure I've. I'm not sure I've picked up everything Kubrick's trying to say, but I, I think I kind of have what it's trying to say. And I think there's some clues right at the beginning. The opening shot is of Nicole Kidman naked, and you think, oh, wow, this is going to be all about sexual exploration. But then she's kind of just putting her clothes on, and it's all very humdrum, and it's all very normal. And the next thing you see is that he's kind of tying his bow tie while she's on the toilet. And I think what you're trying to trying to show is that a married couple have got very much into like a comfortable kind of... Um, not a rut, but they're kind of, you know, everything about their kind of day-to-day existence is very everyday. And, you know, she's, you know, you know, at, at home, she's like, you know, she used to work in a gallery and quite, a, you know, an art gallery is quite a glamorous existence. Now she's just at home picking cereal out of the out of the carpet while the little daughter goes to school. Um, and you actually see Nicole portrayed as just a wife. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Tom Cruise is a is, is in his like smart suit and they're about to go to a party. And I think what it says is that Tom Cruise, even though they've got kids and everything, is going out, looks smart, he's a doctor, everyone likes a doctor, he's a good looking guy, and people, you know, women often kind of show an interest in him, and Nicole Kidman's stuck at home. And I think that's kind of the instigating incident. Because when they're at the party, Nicole Kidman throws back a couple of drinks and seems really kind of like um it's almost like the guy chatting her up is the only excitement she's had in about a year. Do you know what I mean? And and, yeah. when, and when Tom Cruise isn't remotely bothered by that, um, that kind of really pisses her off. So she tells this story that she probably shouldn't have told him about the fact that she was once attracted to a guy. Because I think the moral of the story is Stanley Kubrick is saying, yeah, mate, your wife sees other blokes and thinks they're good looking. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it's best not to dwell on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and but I mean he kind of he kind of provokes it as well because two women essentially invite him off for a threesome at the party, and he's obviously loving the fact that he's a handsome doctor and women like him. Do you know what I mean? And I think he's very comfortable with the fact that his wife is safe at home looking after the kids, and I don't think he's ever going to do anything about it or isn't considering doing anything about it at the start of the film. But he does like the fact that women are interested in him, and it's kind of like what Kubrick does is kind of says to Tom Cruise's character, right, mate, I'm going to turn your life upside down. 
everything you thought you were comfortable with, you're not. Your wife could go and have an affair with a guy tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? And you're, you know, you're not as secure as you think you are. And and then the film, what it does is it explores the kind of fragility of the male sexual ego. And I think the reason Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's husband and wife that obviously interested Tom Cruise, but I think what also interested him is Tom Cruise has always been, regardless of what his kind of personal uh, life is, because I don't really know what his personal life is, but there's always been kind of rumours of Scientology and everything else. On film, he has always been um, this uh, kind of epitome of like, uh, you know, perfect masculinity. Do you know what I mean? Throughout the 80s and 90s, it was like, oh, Tom Cruise, he's a matinee idol type. And for him to kind of go, oh, I, 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 I to, to, to be completely thrown off by what his wife tells him kind of says, he's kind of, he's putting masculinity and the male ego in the mixer and saying, what are you going to do? You know, you're, you know, you know, your confidence around your, you know, about the women in your life is completely misplaced. And I think that's what, I think that's what Tom Cruise is doing. And, and when he goes to sort of the, the sex party, he doesn't do anything. And when he goes, when this woman propositions him, he doesn't do anything. And he's kind of deciding what he's going to do about these kind of, it's almost like he's saying his wife was so, says she was so close to leaving him because she was hugely attracted to this man. It's almost like he feels like he has to level the score. Do you know what I mean? And goes to these sex parties and is one, one, and, but, but, keep struggling to go through with it and I think there's a couple of things going on one is Kubrick is telling the difference between you know these fantasies about sexual sex orgies or, or like being propositioned by a stranger Kubrick's going well the reality of that is not nearly as glamorous as it sounds Do you know what I mean because all of those women at those sex parties are prostitutes and they're you know a lot of them are probably on drugs and you know and you know he's and that's why at the beginning of the party there's a woman who is OD'd because she's a, she's a drug user and, and, and I think what Kubrick's saying is, is that the actual reality behind these things you fantasize about would not be very nice. And, you know, the woman, the stranger prop sitting on the street, again, is a prostitute. And that's not exactly a, a safe existence to be on the streets of New York soliciting sex from men. And um, the, the idea of like, you know, being attracted to, you know, you know, hot, you know, barely legal teenage girls is like a frequent kind of, you know, you know, fantasy. And the reality behind that is that, you know, maybe a man would like traffic his own daughter because of the money that's to be made. So Kubrick is kind of peeling back a layer and going, well, these, if you try to make these things, anything other than a fantasy, it gets dark and nasty really fast. It felt to me that that's what Kubrick was trying to say about this. There's also an element of like the dream sequence around this because he goes off in the night and a woman, you know, a, a woman patient propositions him her husband's just died or her father's just died and she's in an emotional state and she almost kind of reaches out to him because she finds him attractive and he's kind of he's kind of taken aback by this he goes to the sex party doesn't follow through with anything. and there's almost like this dream element where he goes back to where the sex party was and there's no evidence that any of it took place he walks down the street and 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 it's like he he, he keeps conjuring up these scenarios of sexual fantasies and can't actually um, go through with any of them like he's in a dream like he's trapped in some sort of dream that you can't kind of follow through with what you're trying to do um, and there's been all sorts of you know interpretations of this and interpretations of all sorts of uh, Kubrick's you know fantasies they looked at the names of the the characters like you know is this some sort of you know subtext about you know Tom Cruise's own relationship with with Mel Kidman um, there's you know it takes place at Christmas is he saying something about Christmas you know, there's all sorts of things that, that, that go on in this. And, and personally, I would say this is a fascinating film, but I probably need to watch it a couple more times before I really get it, if you see what I mean, because I think there's so much going on. But I, I think I got what he was trying to say. And I think like all of these things, it's brilliantly done. But it was there's 
I'm still not sure on some of the stuff like the way that these kind of strange theme music themes keep being played. Strangers in the Night keeps being played almost out of tune on the piano. And is this is this is this a dream? Is this all happening in Tom Cruise's head? I'm not sure. And I think I probably need to watch it a couple more times to really kind of arrive at what I think of all this. Um, obviously, there are some stories that put some strain on the Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman marriage. Stanley Kubrick insisted on keeping Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman apart. So Nicole Kidman didn't see any of the scenes where Tom Cruise is hanging around with nude women at the sex party. Um, they obviously film. Tom Cruise has this nightmarish fantasy of his wife with other men. Uh, Kubrick didn't let Tom Cruise see the set when Nicole Kidman's filming her sex scenes with 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 the other men for those dream sequences. Um, he made them kind of tell him lots of like secrets about their marriage to kind of get them to kind of. He wanted them to be in character, but I think it seemed it put them all under a great deal of of, of strain. It, it was a four hundred day shoot, all Jesus in the UK. Christ. He he basically recreated large parts of of, of Greenwich Village on a film set in Hertfordshire. Um, he, you know, he made areas like country houses look like, you know, upstate New York. Um, and it, it is weird. I mean, none of this film is, is on an absolutely huge scale. So it is kind of a strange film to take that long to make. And I think there's an element of Stanley Kubrick kind of his, his own obsessiveness is actually, it might be what the film's about. Do you know what I mean? Because this is about a man obsessing over something so much that he can't, that he, that he that he that he's trapped himself in this kind of horrible state of mind, and I think there's an element of Stanley Kubrick is going dealing with his own obsessions in that, because his obsessions aren't sexual. His obsessions are um, making films, telling the story, saying what he what he wants to say, controlling everything that he's trying to control while making a film, and 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 I, I think you know when you hear these stories about Stanley Kubrick taking weeks and like five hundred takes just to do the trailer for Full Metal Jacket. I feel like Stanley Kubrick was a man trapped inside his own kind of OCD oh. with the last few films that he made. Um, but again, I, I'm, I, I enjoyed this film. I thought it was very well made. I'm not sure I completely believe Tom Cruise, age 34 or whatever, as a doctor. Um, but he was very good as a man. He's kind of lost, completely lost his bearings. Nicole Kidman, she was fine. You know, I'm not I'm not a massive fan of, of Nicole Kidman, but she's not an incompetent actress. You know what I mean? So she played the part that she was trying to play well. It's just there's so much of this film it seemed a bit off, and it was probably on purpose. Some of the dialogue sounds like it doesn't sound right, and that's probably deliberate. And I think it's just one of those films you have to watch a couple more times to kind of kind of do it. In terms of the big stories about the film, was was Stanley Kubrick killed for making this film? Yes. If you ask me. Maybe you should watch the film yourself and, and decide to make it. For me, if you ask me, the time to kill him would have been before he delivered a finished film that was subsequently released for the world to see in a blaze of publicity. I'm not sure what killing him achieved. Um, also, um, I just don't see anything in the sort of uh, wealthy sex parties that would actually have offended anybody that much. One, because there's an element of the film that's like, this could well be about us imagining that that's what the, the wealthy do on a weekend. It's like, you know, of course they get up to sex parties. They're rich and can have whatever they want. Of course they do this sort of thing rather than being any of that. And while there's an element of, there is a story of a man trafficking his daughter. He basically starts selling his daughter for sex, although she does seem to be totally up for it, um, which again is another kind of ethical kind of concern. Um, but it's almost like if she's going to be doing this, he might as well make money out of it is, is a weird thing. But there's no suggestion that any of the women at the elite sex party are trafficked. There doesn't seem to be any kind of links to the Epstein story in any of this. 
I get the feeling that if even if it was a 100% accurate portrayal of what the elites do, you know, uh, you know, of, of an evening with, with their kind of sex parties, they would just laugh it, laugh it off over a cognac and then go back into the party room. Um, but maybe you should watch it and make your own mind up, mate. I just don't see anything in there that anyone would have bothered to kill him for. I think it's more likely that after a 400-day shoot and a million takes and a million re-edits that Stanley Kubrick finally fucking wore himself out. Do you know what I mean? That's what they want you to believe. <laughs> That's what they want you to believe. You're one of them. Yeah. No, you, yeah, what you've said there is, is pretty much all true. Like, it had been more implicit and they'd had, like, actual real-life people yeah, saying and, and, that and, they were getting up to no good, then maybe, but... And if, if the, and if the story had been that the women at the party have been trafficked, maybe. I, I, look, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, who knows? There's there's so many... There's just there's so many stories around Kubrick. The, the other question around this film was whether this was really Kubrick's final cut, because he delivered this finished cut of the film to Warner Brothers and then died of a heart attack. So there's questions over whether it was the, the final cut. There's also a question of it needed some tweaks uh, to get past the censors in, in the States because they're you know what they're like about sex. Gun, guns and violence is fine, but any nudity is a problem. There has um, to be a gun on a titty, not just a titty. Yeah, if you covered up and, and a woman's naked body with a gun, you'd be fine. Um, and, and basically Kubrick wasn't there to do the, the, the cuts to the film for the R rating that it got in America. So... Do you know what I mean? It's, it, 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 he didn't get the final say on exactly how to present the film in the States, but the version you see here in, in Europe is uncut, so that's what Kubrick wanted you to see. The only thing I would say is is that every other Kubrick film, he was making kind of tweaks to it right up until the day of release, or almost the day of release. So while it's pretty much Kubrick's final cut, if he had lived, he would have he'd have carried on working on it, because he always did. Yeah. Um, as you said, there's all sorts of um, stories... Um, uh, you know, weirdly enough, there's there's there was an interview published after his death, purporting to be from the set of Eyes Wide Shut, and claiming to be the last interview Stanley Kubrick ever gave, but it was fake. There was some random bloke who used to go around impersonating Kubrick and giving interviews until he was arrested and kind of sued and given a restraining order. <laughs> so Kubrick just a, a, attracted this kind of obsessive kind of conspiracy theories and stories and everything else, and for for, for, to, for him to make a film like this, which maybe maybe real or maybe fantasy, maybe the the just the dreams of the main character or not, and it's full of so many hidden meanings and odd atmospheres. Of course, it's going to attract all of this, and it, you know, it's just it's it's kind of a it's an interesting final statement from Kubrick that it almost plays into his own myth a little bit. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think he wanted this to be his last film. And, and I, I do feel like, you know, I'm sort of moving into the summing up of Kubrick's kind of um, overall career. I don't think he wanted this to be his last film. I think there are films that he wanted to make before that he didn't quite make. And he was trying to get AI, AI done before he died and, and gave it to Spielberg. You know, his, his, he always, you know, he, 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 you know, he said that if he, he actually said it was his, you know, if, if he died before it could get made, um, he wanted Spielberg to do it. So the question is, did did Kubrick know he was going to die? The fact is, I think Kubrick knew it might take him another fucking 10 years to get a film made because that's what it was taking him. Who knows? Um, but it doesn't feel like 13 films is enough for a 45-year career, especially when he only did three films in the last 25 years of his life. So it feels like Kubrick left something left something out there on the pitch, if you see what I mean, before he yeah. died. I mean, from the films you've seen of Kubrick, I mean, what, what what's your overall impression of him as a filmmaker? totally varied um yeah he made he made a couple war films he made the shining which you could consider a horror he made 2001 which is fucking 
bonkers. Um, what else did he do? Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. Barry Lyndon is a straight up historical drama. Except how do you how do you even cla- like how do you even classify Clockwork Orange as a film? Like, what do you even put that under? I don't know. It's it's a weird one. Again, we'll never know. We won't know because it came out before either of us were born. We'll never know quite what the response to it really was when it came out because it caused such a storm. And now, it wouldn't cause the same storm, even though it would still be highly controversial. He's he certainly liked to make his audience uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? I think it's very interesting that the vast majority of his films were big hits, especially after his first couple. Passive Glory didn't do great at the box office, but got a lot of critical attention. Same with The Killing. They, they, they did okay, but not brilliant. But after that, everything he did, you know, Spartacus was a big hit, Lolita, everything after that was very commercially successful. And when you consider what personal films he made and how he didn't sort of make a single compromise to make his audience comfortable, it's interesting that he was as commercially successful as he was because he he loved, I think he loved to put his audience on the spot and make them feel like they're disoriented, uncomfortable, offended, scared, confused. He just, I think he loved kind of poking and prodding and and uh, and manipulating his audience, if you see what I mean. Yeah. That's as varied as his films are. I think you're right. He's made such a wide variety of films. He was always... He was always pushing boundaries, and he was always trying to make you know put his audience through uh you know through the ringer. Um, favorite favorite Kubrick film? Oh, The Shining. Yeah, for me, I think it's Barry Lyndon, but The Shining is is a great film as well. I mean, I I love many of his two thousand and one. It's it, it it's been a it's been a really interesting like uh, experience watching his films, especially watching them in order because you watch how his films progress because they got. You, you, each time I watched one more of his films, you know you know from you know. After Lolita made me really uncomfortable with the subject matter, but I think Kubrick was completely justified in what he was doing. I think it was a great character study of a of a paedophile. He was basically saying this is what paedophiles are like, and he was lifting the lid on what absolute kind of weirdos and scum they are. Um, but then uh, Doctor Strange Love is is a hilarious film about the apocalypse, which is very Kubrick. But after that, every film after that, you sort of I felt like I was getting into deeper and deeper waters every time I watched one of his films. You know, even um, even Full Metal Jacket, which gets a bit conventional in the second half, that first hour in the basic training, watching um, uh, uh, D'Onofrio's character go off the wall, I just feel like every time I was I was I was getting into deeper and weirder and stranger waters every time I watched one of his films. So it was a very, it was a rich and unsettling experience watching these films, is what I'll say. So that was my year-long project, 2022, A Kubrick Odyssey. Just like the John Carpenter project from the previous year, I've really enjoyed doing this and discovering and rediscovering Kubrick's films. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed coming along for the ride, and I'm grateful as always to my co-host James Adamson for sitting in with me. Next year, I will do another project like this, exploring the work of another great filmmaker. Look out for more details soon. This podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Please give us a good review wherever you get your podcasts and look out for our next regular episode 33 coming out in January. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.